This is Commission President. Oh, are we live? I'm sorry, I should have checked before. Are we good? Uh, yes, I yes. Okay. This is Commission President Sam Cho convening the regular meeting of December 12th, 2023. The time is now 10.31 a.m. We're meeting in person today at the Port of Seattle headquarters, building commission chambers, and virtually via Microsoft Teams. Present with me today are Commissioners Calkins and uh, Mohammed, who are currently gathered in the executive session room awaiting the opening of the public meeting. We'll now recess into executive session to discuss three items regarding litigation or potential litigation or legal risk per RCW 42.30.110 sub 1 sub I for approximately 60 minutes. One of those items is uh, as well related to the performance of public employees per RCW 42.30.110 sub 1 sub G. We will reconvene into public session at 12 noon. Thank you so much. We are in recess. Excellent. All right. This is Commission President Sam Cho reconvening the regular meeting of December 12th, 2023. I should probably. <laughs> the time is 12.05 p.m. We're meeting in person today at the Port of Seattle headquarters building, Commission Chambers, as well as virtually via Microsoft Teams. Clerk Hart, please call the roll of all commissioners in attendance. Thank you. Beginning with Commissioner Calkins. Here. Thank you. Commissioner Cho. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa on the virtual line or no? And Commissioner Mohammed Here. Thank you. We do have a quorum established. Excellent. Thank you very much. A few housekeeping items before we begin. For everyone in the meeting room, please turn your cell phones to silent. For anyone, and for anyone participating on Microsoft Teams, please mute your speakers when not actively speaking or presenting. Please keep your cameras off unless you're a member of the commission or executive director participating virtually or are a member of staff in a presentation or actively addressing the commission. Members of the public addressing the commission during public comment may turn on their cameras when their name is called to speak and will turn them back off again at the conclusion of their remarks. For everyone at the dais today, or anyone at the dais today, please turn off the speakers or on any computers and silence your devices. Please also remember the, to address your questions to be recognized, to speak through the chair, and to, when the way to speak until you have been recognized, you'll turn on your microphones on and off as needed. All of these items noted here will ensure a smoother meeting, so I thank you in advance. All votes today will be taken by the roll call method so that it's clear for anyone participating virtually how votes are cast. Commissioners will say aye or nay when their name is called. We are meeting on the ancestral lands and waters of the Coast Salish people with whom we share a commitment to steward these natural resources for future generations. The meeting is being digitally recorded and may be viewed or heard at any time on the port's website and may be rebroadcast by King County Television. Please now stand and join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. All right, the first item on the agenda is approval of the agenda. As a reminder, if a commissioner wishes to comment for or against an item on the consent agenda, it is not necessary to pull the item from the consent agenda. Rather, you may offer supporting or opposing comments uh, later in the meeting once we get to the item. Please wait until the motion to approve the consent is on the floor of these items, if any. Uh, it, however, it is appropriate at this time if a commissioner wants to ask questions of staff uh, or have a dialogue to pull items for, from the agenda. Are there any items to be pulled from the agenda, uh, consent agenda, or motions to be rearrange the orders of the day? 
All right, seeing none, commissioners, the question is now on approval of the agenda. Is there a motion to approve the agenda as presented? So moved. Second. Excellent, the motion has been made and seconded. Is there any objection to approval of the agenda as presented? All right, hearing none, the agenda is approved. Uh, we have no special orders of the day, and so we will move straight on to our executive director's report. Executive Director Metric, you have the floor. Commissioners, good afternoon. It's hard to believe that this is the last port meeting uh, of the commission for the year, but here we are. Holiday celebrations have begun, so I'd like to begin my remarks by wishing everyone a happy Hanukkah to everyone who celebrates, and this year Hanukkah is celebrated from December 7th to 15th. Second, I would like to thank Deputy Executive Director Karen Goon for filling in for me at the last commission meeting in November when you adopted the port budget. Now, the 2024 budget was a culmination of months of work, and it lays the foundation for great things in the year ahead. Thank you for the adoption on the budget and the entire team for pushing the budget across the finish line. The last commission meeting of the year is also a great time to reflect on the success we achieved together. For anyone who's been to any of the port holiday gatherings and celebrations over the last couple of weeks, you probably have already heard me say that 2023 was an extraordinary year for the port. Operationally, it was one of our best years in history. We set new standards for customer service. We expanded opportunities for local businesses that depend on the port for access to customers. We made critical progress on expanding essential services and protecting our working waterfront for the next generation. We committed to and launched projects to build the port of the future with emphasis on sustainability, opportunity, and economic equity. We continue our world-leading programs on sustainability and equity in a way that supports the community and the planet while making our business lines more competitive and resilient. And we supported our workforce with investments to meet our goals for equity and to ensure that we remain an employer of choice. Here are just a couple highlights. On Monday, July 24th, we served more passengers at SEA than ever before in our history. Five days later, the International Rivals Facility set its own record for serving the most international passengers ever in our history. Our cruise team had the best season ever in their history, breaking last year's record for passenger volume. For customer service, the one millionth person to use the free spot saver program to save their space in the TSA screening line passed through our airport. And we might get two million by the end of this month. We also took major steps forward on our working waterfront. After years of planning and design, the commission approved major projects to develop Terminal 91 uplands and build a landmark maritime innovation center at Fisherman's Terminal. I'm really looking forward to those groundbreakings at the airport and seaport next year. On the, on the environmental front, our team was on the world stage advocating for alternative fuels to accelerate decarbonization and the port is increasingly being seen as a global leader in driving reductions in everything from carbon emissions to underwater noise. We also invested directly in our Nearport communities through initiatives like our Duwamish Valley Community Equity Program and our South King County Impact Fund not to mention our economic development, workforce development, and tourism grants. Ensuring shared prosperity is core to our mission, and I'm particularly proud of how we are blazing new trails and finding ways to do that. This was also a very strong year for building relationships with customers, partners, and the community. Those relationships are critical to our future success. And I want to thank President Cho for st steadfast, efficient, and effective leadership throughout the year 
and all of you in getting the work done in the year to date. Commissioners, your vision and leadership in strengthening many of those relationships was critical to us throughout the year. Of course, the year isn't over yet. We're only in December, and while it is darker, colder, and wetter, Port employees and our partners are out there delivering essential services when our community needs them most. I want to recognize our employees working around the clock in challenging winter conditions, especially during the upcoming holiday travel or during holiday travel when all eyes are on the airport. So lastly, I'd like to announce some changes among our staff heading into the new year. Um, Marin Burnett, who was an innovative leader in strategic initiatives, is leaving the port for a new appointment with King County. We're going to miss Marin greatly, especially as we begin a new year, but we appreciate her contributions to improving our planning and other work across the port. We wish her the best in a new role as a Chief Administrative Officer for King County Department of Natural Resources and Parks. This meeting, we're also welcoming Kathy Reuter to her first commission meeting serving, serving as the Executive Chief of Staff. You all know her from time at the port as a key leader on external relations, and I look forward to working with Kathy as we build upon our successes in the coming year. Finally, thank you to everyone uh, to Thank you to everyone in the executive office, in the executive office, and particularly our former interim executive director for over a year, uh, Eric Schinfeld, for pulling together this transition period. And Eric happily is returning to his job in uh, government relations. So moving to today's commission meeting, I'd like to highlight one item. Item 8G in the consent is a contract related to the Duwamish Valley. This request is for authorization to, comp to compete uh, two project-specific IDIQ contracts that expire next year. Each contract supports key elements of Resolution 3767, the Duwamish Valley Community Equity Program, serving the goals of the Community Benefits Commitment adopted by the Commission in 2019. These goals focus on collaboration with nearby communities, health environments, and economic prosperity in place. Contract 1 supports the Port and Community Capacity Building, specifically our partnership with engagement with the 12-member Port Community Action Team, which we got a briefing from earlier this year. And Contact 2 supports Green Career Pathways through our Green Jobs Initiative, which is tied to Port Habitat restoration projects in the Duwamish Valley. The contract periods are up to five years in length. This is not a, a request for funding. The, the, contract, the funds for Contracts 1 are budgeted for external relations, and Contract 2 is a three-way funding partnership between external relations, the Office of Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Maritime and Environment Sustainability. So, Commissioners, that concludes my remarks. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. We'll now move on to committee reports. Erica Chung, Commission's Strategic Advisor, will provide the report. Good afternoon, President Cho, Commissioners, and Executive Director Metric. I have several committee reports for you today. On November 15th, Port of Seattle Commissioner Fellman chaired the Highline Forum with Community Co-Chair Des Moines Mayor Mahoney attending. Forum members received an update from Deputy Mayor Negusi, the host city of SeaTac. They also received an update from Washington State Department of Transportation on the current work being done on Stage 1B and upcoming Stage 2 work of the SR-509 Puget Sound Gateway Project. Sound Transit provided a comprehensive presentation regarding operations and security issues that were, they are addressing. The agency is in the process of stepping up fare enforcement. 
Report Senior Director of Economic Development, Dave McFadden, and Economic Development Manager, Annie Tran, gave a comprehensive presentation on the port's role in partnering to foster our regional and local economy. Port's Interim Noise Program Manager, Tom Fagerstrom, provided a primer on what a Part 150 noise study is, what is included, and when the public will have an opportunity to provide their input, and the approximate timeline for completion. Initial public outreach for this new Part 150 will occur in the first half of 2024, and the study is projected to take from four to seven years to complete. The Port conducted Part 150 noise studies in 1985, 1992, 2002, and 2014. All of the mitigation and noise remedies that the Commission has authorized funding are a result of these studies. On November 28th, Commissioners Mohammed and Calkins co-chaired the Aviation Committee. The agenda topics included updates on two committee priorities, transportation network company driver parking and the implementation of phase one of the expanded geofence increasing the size of the dwell areas for drivers and an update and overview of the taxi curbside management contract that is scheduled to be considered at today's meeting. On November 28th, Commissioners Hasegawa and Calkins convened the Equity and Workforce Development Committee. Commissioner received the results of the October 2023rd Taxi Drivers Workforce Development Survey with 300 people responding at a 74% participation rate and about 15% 50% expressing interest in training for a new job within the next year. Commissioners gave feedback on strategies and port staff will work to connect these drivers with ports existing workforce development programs and with external partners. Commissioners also heard an update on the ports diversity and contracting efforts and commissioners offered input on the next steps while staff work to incorporate the results of a disparity study into a new five-year plan. Also on November 28th, Commissioners Hasegawa and Fellman convened the Sustainability, Environment, and Climate Committee, where they were briefed on the municipal solid waste to municipal solid waste to fuel techno-economic study findings. Staff shared the types of technology used in municipal solid waste to sustainable aviation fuel conversion, economically viable, economic viability of an SAF facility and financial risk and received input from commissioners to explore available incentives that could potentially make SAF financially competitive to conventional jet fuel. Also on November 28th, Commissioners Hasegawa and uh, Mohammed convened the Airport Workforce Conditions Ad Hoc Committee where they received an update on the child care initiative, a timeline for the consultant search and when staff hopes to have a consultant in place to embark on the study. Commissioners then received a briefing on the port-wide third-party code of conduct initiative and recommendations. Commissioners praised staff for their extensive research and analysis of other local government entities and how they are generally mandating lawful behavior or requirements from contractors and vendors, and advised staff to further consider how we can validate contractors and vendors' compliance attestment up front consequences for breach of contract, and if that happens, and to engage stakeholders for a better informed policy development. Uh, lastly, Commissioners uh, Cho and Calkins convened the Governance Committee meeting on December 4th. The committee received a briefing of the bylaws and rules of procedure policy directive amendment package. The committee reviewed the package of amendments and gave their recommendations to proceed with bringing the amendments forward to the commission in January 2024. 
They also received a briefing on the Governance Committee, Standing Committee Charter. Briefings with other individual commissioners will be scheduled to overview the package of amendments with them directly. The committee uh, reviewed the proposed Standing Committee Charter and recommended that it move forward to the full commission for consideration in January. This action would take, this action would make the Ad Hoc Governance Committee a formal Standing Committee under the Commission's bylaw. This concludes my report. Lots of activity. Thank you so much, Erica. Any questions for Erica or Executive Director Metric? All right, thank you very much. We are now moving on to the public comment section of our agenda. The Port Commission welcomes public comment as an important part of the public process. Comments are received and considered by the Commission in its deliberations. Before we take public comment, let's review our rules for in-person and virtual public comment. Clerk Hart, please play the recorded rules. The Port of Seattle Commission welcomes you to our meeting today. As noted, public comment is an important part of the public process, and the Port of Seattle Commission thanks you for joining us. The Commission accepts in-person, virtual, and written public comment regarding matters related to the conduct of port business. Before we proceed, here are the Commission's public comment rules of procedure for your information. Each commenter will have two minutes to speak and should stay within the allotted time. A timer will appear on the screen and a buzzer will sound at the end of the two minute period for each speaker. The Commission reserves the right to receive comments specifically related to the conduct of port business. If comments are not related to the conduct of port business, the presiding officer will stop the speaker and ask that comments be kept to matters related to the conduct of port business. This rule applies to both introductory and concluding remarks. All remarks should be addressed to the commission as a body and not to individual commissioners. Disruptions of commission public meetings are prohibited. Disruptions include, but are not limited to the following. Refusal of a speaker to limit remarks to topics related to the conduct of port business. Threats and abusive or harassing behavior and language. Obscene language and gestures. Refusal of a speaker to comply with the allotted time set for the individual speaker's public comment. Leaving the podium or testimony table to physically approach commissioners or staff during one's public comment provided speakers may offer written materials to the commission clerk, and any behavior that disrupts, disturbs, or otherwise impedes the meeting. Any disruption will result in a speaker's microphone being immediately shut off by the presiding officer and a warning or loss of speaking privileges or removal from the meeting room may occur as provided in the commission's bylaws. Written materials provided to the clerk will be included in today's meeting record. The clerk has a list of those prepared to speak. We are taking comments from anyone who has signed up to speak virtually, as well as from anyone who has joined us today here in the meeting room. When your name is called, if you are joining virtually, 
Please unmute yourself, then please repeat your name for the record and state your topic related to the conduct of port business. You may turn on your camera at this time. The two minute timer will then begin. If you're on the Teams meeting and at the same time streaming the meeting on the website, please mute the website stream to avoid feedback. When you have concluded your remarks, you may again turn off your camera and mute your speaker. If you are speaking from the meeting room, please come to the testimony table, repeat your name for the record, and state your topic related to the conduct of port business. Our public comment period will now commence. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you, Michelle. Our first public comment uh, will come from Alex Zimmerman. Mr. Commission President, what is our timer today? Oh, it will be, um, we do have a quite, quite a long list of um, speakers. I'm looking at this list and it's quite extensive. I think we're gonna limit it to one minute today. Okay, let me get that moment, let me get that timer up here, just one moment. I'm counting 25. Okay. Just one moment, please. And we do have that timer up, Mr. Commission President. Excellent. Our first speaker will be Alex Zimmerman. Yes, Alex. You can do in everything what is you want. Thank you very much. All right, Alex, you know the drill. If you can say your name and the topic related to poor business, and then we will start the clock. Yeah, okay, no problem. My name is Alex Zimmerman. I live here almost 40 years, and I'm president of Stand Up America. And your topic? Oh, you're only one minute, not two minutes? Yeah, one minute. Everyone gets one minute today. We have a lot of people. Oh. Yeah. But oh, we'll my topic, impeachment co commissioner Chow. Chow, yeah. So I want what is, uh, and I spoke about this before a few times in every meeting. I think this commissioner, what is we have right now, they cannot qualify. And I explained to you two points, what is absolutely critical. Number one, almost 90% people never support election, what has happened last time. And by statistics, it's low in election in 100 years. So Democrat basic, you know what this means? Democrat mafia, democratic basic, vote for people again. Alex, you need to keep your comments to port business, not elections. Important business is not election because you not qualify for this position. How is this more important can be when you not qualify a chair? Okay, this number one. Number two, for another 30 seconds. Since he support Iranian Muslim in Hamas, butcher, you know what is mean, what is pure American enemy. In all civilized- Alex, you need to keep your remarks to port business. I see you in court. I promise you, if you start to interrupt me, I will see you in court. This will be happen next week. All right, thank you very much. Next speaker is uh, David Montanaro.
Good afternoon. I'm David Montanaro. I'm the managing partner of uh, Polino the, uh, in the Central Terminal, and I'm also a co-founder of the Small Business Airport uh, Action Committee. And I'm just here to uh, comment on the proposal before you to modernize and evolve the legacy RFP process for dining and retail. So just starting. So I just we just want to offer our support for all the hard work that went into that process and trying to make it more closely aligned with, I think, the stated goals of the commission and the port leadership in the airport is to provide and curate a diverse set of, of airport dining and retail experiences for the, for the public that consists of both large and small companies and local and national. And second, I wanted to, this is really the culmination of a lot of hard work on everybody's effort. It's been a multi-year process the complexities and, and complications of doing work at the airport over the last five or ten years have increased exponentially, and I think there's been a real effort to try and understand how we can improve and evolve our own internal type processes. You've encouraged us to participate, encouraged all um, constituencies to participate and share their experiences, and so I just want to offer my appreciation for allowing us to collaborate with you on that. Thank you. Thank you, David. Appreciate you coming down. So I'm going to alternate between uh, in-person and public comment, uh, virtual. We don't have that many virtual, but I just want to make sure we get through uh, everyone fairly. So our next virtual public comment speaker is Iris Antman. Iris, can you hear me? Iris? Yeah, hi. Um, good afternoon, commissioners, director, and staff. My name is Iris Antman. I'd like to address the port's land stewardship plan as well as the Sustainable Airport Master Plan. Specifically, with regards to the proposal in the SAMP to replace 26 acres of mostly tree-covered land in the Riverton Heights community with two cargo warehouses, the port will be destroying trees that remove pollution and reduce heat in an already polluted residential area, replacing them with more sources of pollution and heat. These warehouses would be within a few feet of people's homes and a half a mile of daycare centers, a public school and places of business and worship. Riverton Heights is one of several neighborhoods facing this kind of swap out of trees for roads, warehouses, and parking lots under port plans. The port's proposal to develop it in the SAM is in the SAM, not the land stewardship plan, but information in the in the stewardship plan strongly suggests that the port still expects to develop here. My point is that the port continues to prioritize economic growth over health and environmental considerations, affecting the people living right there in the airport's neighborhoods. Not only is this not equitable, but it's moving in the wrong direction on creating a life-sustaining environment for our city's residents. Thank you, Iris. Maybe, maybe we don't need two cargo warehouses. Maybe we can all live with less stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you, Iris. Our next speaker is uh, Wendy Butsirin. Apologize if I mispronounced your name. Hi, my name is Wendy Butzerin, and I'm speaking about the Sustainable Airport Master Plan, plan proposal to replace 26 acres of trees with two cargo warehouses. Uh, Wendy, before I uh, before you, your clock, bin, could you mind uh, maybe sitting down? You're further away from the mic, then. So I just want to make sure folks can hear. Sorry. Thank you. Do I start over? No, no, you're fine. Your your clock hasn't started yet, so you could just start from where you were. 
North SeaTac Park certainly holds a special place in the hearts of my family and many Highline residents. My children grew up going to this park. It offers a peaceful oasis amid the bustle of suburbia. The proposed warehouses will be detrimental to the healthy ecosystems within the park and it creates a future precedent of industrial invasion that could have devastating impacts, impacts on our community. The Port of Seattle allegedly advocates for environmental justice and land stewardship, yet the warehouses would undoubtedly cause deforestation and damage to the environment. Already, there's two warehouses along Des Moines Memorial Drive. Do we want our trees replaced by concrete? Should we allow industrial invasion to continue deforesting our land and polluting our air, the Highline area may not be the wealthiest or the most important neighborhood in the grand scheme of things, but we care about our community and our parks. You have the power to preserve the natural beauty of North SeaTac Park or destroy it, and I ask that you keep our community's needs in mind as you move forward. Thank you. Thank you very much, Wendy. Our next speaker is going to be Joshua Walter. Uh, he's online. Hello. So, uh, Go ahead, Joshua, sorry. Uh, no problem. Uh, uh, Commissioner, uh, Commission President Cho and members of the commission, uh, for the record, I'm Joshua Welcher uh, with Teamsters Local 117. Um, I'd like to speak about the RFP for the curbside management for the taxi operation that's on your agenda. Um, I wanna uh, acknowledge and appreciate the work of staff um, um, in the presentation materials. I can see that there's an attention to some improvements for the curb um, around customer service, around dispute resolution, and around uh, janitorial um, uh, uh, responsibilities. Appreciate that attention. Um, it, it, it is also, um, uh, we just became aware on Friday, reading the memo in front of you, that one of the alternatives that is uh, not the preferred alternative, um, um, alternative number two, uh, not the preferred alternative from uh, uh, recommended from staff, um, uh, um, offers an opportunity to bring the curbside management in-house, which uh, the memo says would uh, uh, yield a $2 million savings and also uh, provide um, the port more control over some of those areas that um, appropriate attention um, is being paid to in the next um, um, uh, uh, curbside uh, contract. So. Um, uh, that struck us as something that uh, uh, is worthy of attention, and we would ask for um, some time to consider that um, um, alternative. Thank Thanks. you so much for your time. Thanks, Josh. Uh, next public speaker is Daniel Wynn. <laughs> yeah, you got to let him out to get here. <laughs> Good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, for the record, uh, my name is Daniel Wynn. I'm with Bamboo's Hospitality Group. We own and operate uh, three restaurants in the um, Seattle Airport. Uh, I'm just here to offer my, uh, my uh, appreciation and thanks for the commission for creating opportunities for small business. I think that um, uh, entrepreneurship and small business ownership really is a, is a pathway for um, especially the uh, communities in the minority and women-owned com communities to be able to create that generational wealth, to be able to 
provide for our families, create opportunities for all of the employees that we employ. And so I really appreciate um, you creating this, this space for, for small businesses to thrive. And also, uh, I appreciate the, uh, the changes you've made and the improvements you made to the RFP process. The RFP process is, uh, is quite uh, challenging, as you'll probably hear later on. Um, um, but I know that having gone through the process many times and uh, not successful many of those times as well, it certainly is, uh, is, is a, could potentially be a barrier, but also um, could be places where we can create opportunity for um, small businesses to really have a chance to um, have an audience here at the, at the Port of Seattle and at the, airport, at the um, Port of Seattle Airport as well. So again, my uh, appreciation and thanks for, for all the work you're doing. Thanks so much for coming up. Really appreciate it, Daniel. Um, next speaker is virtual, Susan Ward. Susan, can you hear me? Susan? Susan, if you're calling in by telephone, it's star six to unmute. All right, we'll come back to Susan. Uh, Naomi Maxwell? Naomi? Yes, I'm here. Oh, Thank you. Excellent. Go ahead and state your name, your topic, uh, and then we'll start the clock. You have one minute. Well, good at Thank you. Good afternoon, Commissioners, Director, and staff. I appreciate you hearing my comments. My name is Noemi Maxwell. I'm here to address the port's land stewardship plan. Uh, this plan must be considered in the context of the Sustainable Airport Master Plan and Real Estate Strategic Plan that have proposals that would replace an estimated 112 acres of air purifying and cooling trees near the airport with heat and pollution generating warehouses, roads, parking lots, and all the traffic that would draw. SeaTac's uh, Riverton Heights neighborhood is one of at least four near the airport that faces a major port swap out of trees for polluting structures. Residents here who live directly under airport flight paths and are surrounded by highways would be harmed by the SAMP proposal to replace 26 acres of trees with two huge cargo warehouses uh, that would be located within a few feet of houses, half a mile of daycare centers, a public school, places of business and worship. Uh, the land stewardship plan's principles of social and environmental justice would be hollow promises unless they offered a pathway to withdraw proposals like this. The densely populated neighborhoods near SeaTac Airport, where tree canopy is among the sparsest in the county where levels of pollution, industrial heat, and noise are among the highest. There's no place where you can replace large areas of tree canopy here with polluting industrial sources without harming human health. Thank you very much. Thank you, Naomi. Appreciate it. Um, next, we have Andy Stewart. Good afternoon. I'm Andy Stewart. I think Commissioner Calkins, Fellman, and I know Dave McFadden and others will probably recognize me as one of the uh, founding board members of Maritime Blue. I was actually last in the seat pitching the Maritime Innovation Center. So it's a pleasure to be here today. I want to talk about Maritime Blue and how hard it is to innovate our way out of a climate crisis. So uh, I, since uh, forming Maritime Blue, I'm not here with Maritime Blue today. I'm here as a member of the community, as an engineer, and uh, as, a, as a mariner as well. I've done a lot. I've really worked really hard to build tidal energy devices, to build wave energy converters, and to support wi offshore wind projects, all with the idea of benefiting uh, our environment. 
But what I've learned, and I, and I share a concern with my friends here for the destruction of our urban forest, since I last sat in this chair, 260 acres of our urban forest have disappeared. That's the size of Green Lake. There's a very concerning trend happening in Seattle. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for the port's efforts, and I'm just gonna ask you, please do more. Please change the default from developing in forested areas when we need new space to finding existing areas that are underutilized, like Sand Point, for example, and making use of those spaces to expand port operations. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Uh, I'm gonna go back to Susan. Susan, can you hear me? Right. Yes, sorry, uh, oh. hello. There we go, Susan, go ahead and state okay. your name and your topic for the record and we'll start the clock, you have one minute. Okay, um, good morning, my name is Susan Ward and I'm uh, speaking in reference to the development plan in um, Riverton Heights. I'm speaking in support of the neighborhoods and communities near the 26 acres of trees that would be lost in the CO2 and CO3 projects. Uh, this community is already greatly impacted by the airport and many uh, are understandably concerned with this prospect of losing this green space. 112 acres total is planned for industrial development. Preserving trees must be prioritized in these plans. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Um, our next speaker, all the rest, the remaining speakers are all in person here. So we'll go with Scott Morell. Good afternoon, my name is Scott Merle. I'm with Apollo Mechanical. We are a Native American owned business and the topic today is the International Arrivals Facility at SeaTac and COVID related cost impacts. The protocols required to work during the COVID-19 pandemic during the construction of the IFA facility rewrote what could be considered a standard job site creating roadblocks, arduous processes and a management nightmare. All this in the face of a very real fear. No one knew if they would be the ones to catch or spread the virus to their own loved ones by working on this project. The port, however, deemed the delivery schedule of this facility essential and directed crews to continue working. And so we did, despite our reservations and through the challenges of operating with the new processes that made just doing our jobs a nearly impossible feat. These tremendous and costly inefficiencies brought with them immense expenses that we were not prepared for, but were focused and forced to recover. And here we stand years later, still without a sign of any payment or relief from the port for all that we gave. We asked the members of the port commission to work with Clark to resolve and pay the businesses who were delivered, who delivered this beautiful facility to you. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Uh, next is Scott Gibson. Good afternoon. My name is Scott Gibson. I'm with Burke Gibson LC. We've been around for 65 or 64 years. My dad started the company. We built custom cabinetry displays and millwork manufacturing in Auburn, Washington. I'm here to discuss the work completed and the lack of payment received for the International Rivals Facility at SeaTac Airport. In 2019, we were thrilled to be awarded the podium manufacturing work as part of SeaTac International Rivals Project for the Port of Seattle. What started out as a simple and straightforward job grew into something complicated and challenging, bringing our hard-earned family business to its knees. COVID hit in 2020, AMID stay-at-home orders. We were directed by the port to keep working, so we did. 
We pulled our people into the plants, managed unexpected expenses for the PPE, material delays and shortages so we could deliver on our promise to do everything we could to continue to deliver for the port. Throughout, this, throughout all this, several times throughout the manufacturing process, the port sent teams of people down to our plant. With each visit, design changes were made to the podia, resulting in the final product very different from what they originally requested and costing us significantly more than what we originally bid. As a local company, the Port of Seattle is one of the most important clients we have, but we can't afford to work with them and stay in business. Faced with employees that need to be paid so they can feed their families, materials that cost more than ever before, and vendors that are no longer willing to work with us on any port projects because of this experience, the situation, and has been very difficult and challenging. Uh, my family my family has ever faced. All I ask is the port pay for the work that we did. All right, thank you very much, Scott. Uh, next is Jared Garcia. Good afternoon. Excuse me. Good afternoon. My name is Jared Garcia. I'm the president, CEO, and owner of Valley Electric, a regional, a regional minority managed electrical contractor that has served the port and the people and the businesses of Washington since 1982. I'm here to speak about the unpaid costs for their international arrivals uh, facility construction. When COVID locked down countries across the globe, our team, like the rest of the world, faced uncertainty and fear and received requests from workers to stay home for the sake of their families. The port, however, disregarded the inherent dangers that came with working through an unprecedented pandemic, directing that the work shall continue at whatever the cost under the new and dangerous conditions. So Valley and its 120 plus workforce showed up at the port to get the project done, risking lives and facing never before seeing dangers, obstacles and hurdles. During this time, we were not only forced to continue working, but also forced to make and pay for modifications directed by the port, covering immense expenses brought on by this direction and the changed and dangerous conditions that accompanied working during a pandemic. We continue to bear the burden of this situation years later without any sign of relief, while the port ignores our suffering and the impacts they caused. To this day, we're still facing refinancing and taking out loans with skyrocketing interest rates to cover expenses, still dogging us from this project. Yet the port refuses to engage in a meaningful way with us, Clark, to resolve these issues. We ask that the work be delivered, that, that the port, you know, meet with us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next is Laura Richardson. Hello, my name is Laura Richardson. I'm the owner of Cole K Electric, a small woman-owned electrical <coughs> contractor. I started my company back in 2007 and I started working at the Port of Seattle in construction projects in 2008. I'm here today to talk about the unpaid cost from the International Rival Facility. As you have heard from others and how COVID effectively turned this project into a nightmare, the flood of health and safety requirements deployed to keep workers safe also created massive inefficiencies and drained my accounts. And regardless of how good my employees were, they put an immense amount of stress on our ability to deliver our work within the planned schedule. This project and COVID financially devastated me and almost bankrupt Colke. Even now, the lingering effects from this essential project is still punishing Colke. 
We struggle to keep our cash flow. I worked hard to build Colquet and make it cash solvent. And with this job, with this DEI requirement, we no longer have the cushion that I built 15 years for. Let me state this again. Your woman-owned small electrical contractor was almost put out of business because of your guys' lack of support. For the group that prides itself on uplifting small businesses, to treat them this way was incredibly frustrating. I pleaded to the DEI office and their absence of assistance was an absolute gut punch. My goal today was just to be heard. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Laura. Next is Scott Guerrero. Hi, uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Scott Gerard, and this is a letter I'm reading on behalf of my friend and colleague, Alan Tarpley, who is not able to be here today in person. Topic of this letter relates to the effect of the fort's failure to pay for work we did at the International Arrivals Facility. Um, here's a letter from him. My name is Alan Tarpley, president of American Fireproofing, Inc., a small business providing applied fireproofing and insulation services. We were part of Clark's team to deliver the SeaTac International Arrivals Project to the Port of Seattle. When COVID hit, everything turned upside down. It was made clear by the port that we were expected to continue working with new COVID restrictions that made our work nearly impossible to complete. For example, one person had to do the work of three, inspectors weren't showing up, and with 95% of our workforce traveling, almost every employee faced repeated two-week quarantine requirements or were prohibited from crossing state lines. These challenges, plus the financial burden from PPE expenses, premium travel fees, and rising material costs squeezed our business past endurance. And ultimately, that's what happened. AFI does not exist anymore. We are very reputable, and COVID and this project ended our company. Uh, I wish I could be there delivering this message myself. To the port, I hope you understand the sacrifices made for you by the small business you hire and pay for the work and costs we shouldered for you. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Bill Calhoun. Good afternoon, Commissioners. My name is Bill Calhoun, Vice Chairman of Clark Construction, the general contractor you selected to design and build the new International Arrivals Facility. I'm here today to speak about costs that the port's not paid for the construction of the new International Arrivals Facility. I'm here today on behalf of the subcontractors you just heard from and many more that followed your written direction to work at risk through the deadly pandemic. While we were working through COVID, port staff met with us regularly to review their own estimates of COVID costs and even briefed the commissioners on these anticipated costs before failing to make any offer for payment. In a recent and unbelievable newfound legal maneuver, the port has asked the court to deny all obligations to pay for the work they directed based on a legal technicality. The court denied the port's request, which has now set us on a path that the port must choose to spend millions of dollars in legal fees in preparation for a trial in 2025, which will only benefit lawyers and consultants, certainly not these subcontractors, or you must direct the leader of your team to engage in meaningful negotiations and end this costly maneuvering. We remain ready to engage in any form of meaningful negotiations. Thank you for your time. Uh, 
Okay, we're gonna move on. Um, June, is it Blue Spruce? Correct. Okay, great. Go ahead, June. Hello, I'm June Blue Spruce and I live in Southeast Seattle and I'm the chair of the Trees and People Coalition. Thank you for allowing me to comment on the port's land stewardship plan. I appreciate its principles of social and environmental justice, but they're meaningless if they're not backed up with action. Some of the proposals in the Port Sustainable Airport Master Plan and its Real Estate Strategic Plan directly undermine these principles. Trees, trees provide cooling shade, remove air pollution, and enhance stormwater drainage. Proposals in these documents would remove trees from an estimated 112 acres near the airport and replace them with warehouses, roads, and parking lots that generate heat and pollution. Others have spoken eloquently about the example of the cutting of 26 acres of trees in Riverton Heights. In addition, near the airport, tree canopy is also already sparse. Pollution, industrial heat, and noise levels are high, and environmental health disparities are severe. A large portion of King County's people of color and people of lower income live there. If the port replaces large swaths of mature tree canopy with polluting industrial sources, serious harm to residents' health and well-being will result. Thank you for listening and taking action to make things right. Thank you, Jim. Uh, next is Jordan Van Voost. Good afternoon, commissioners, Director Metric and Port Staff. My name is Jordan Van Voost. I'm with Seattle Cruise Control, Extinction Rebellion Seattle, and Tree Action Seattle. My topic is the Sustainable Airport Management Plan. Please reconsider plans to cut up to 112 acres of trees to expand airport storage capacity, especially in the Riverton neighborhood. Such an action would render meaningless your goal to advance an equity and environmental justice lens to land stewardship. Forecasts for increased passenger and freight traffic do not account for looming climate disasters. Global, global emissions need to be reduced now. Meanwhile, please remember that trees are the most efficient carbon sequestration machine, period. Planting trees elsewhere does not zero out mature trees being cut, nor justify the public health impacts in airport neighborhoods adversely impacted by air and noise pollution and urban heat. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jordan. Next is Megan McKernan. I'm Megan McKiernan. I'm a native of Seattle. I am with my friends from Tree Action Seattle. Uh, until 10 years ago, oh, and I'm uh, responding to the um, Sustainable Airport Master Plan and the possibility of the loss of the, the number of trees that we're looking at here. And it's, you are pathfinders for needs for the port and for Seattle, but we really need you to stand up and be gatekeepers to <coughs> our future. And I, I heard in the executive director's report how important relationships are to so many, um, in so many areas, 
And I just challenge you to open your hearts and open your minds to the relationship that we need to build with Mother Nature, with our trees, for the generations to come. So it's kind of a grandmotherly, heartfelt request here to think differently, to begin to act differently, to help us as a region come back into balance with Mother Nature so that we don't continue to see the devastation that's happening in this world. My friends can speak articulately to the, the details, and I'm just asking you, please, please work creatively and find another solution. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Sandy Shetler. Hi, I'm short, so I'll lean forward. <laughs> um, I'm Sandy Shetler, and I'm with Tree Action Seattle as well. And I'm also speaking to the Sustainability um, Airport Master Plan. Um, so I'm asking you to please make retaining existing trees a priority and withdraw all proposals to develop forested vacant land. This land, as we know, is not vacant. Um, King County Public Health did a study in 2020 of the impacts of air pollution on airport adjacent communities. They found higher rates of cancer, cardiovascular disease, cognitive impacts, especially on children, and lower birth weights for children, for infants. <coughs> Removing these 26 acres of trees will put those impacts hard on people in Riverton Heights who have already suffered from um, dispersed fuel and other problems. Commissioner Calkins describes this as green colonialism in a really great piece he wrote in April. Quote, in the interest of stopping climate change without changing consumption patterns, they'll despoil landscapes and ignore human rights. He was describing developing countries, but it applies here. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy. Rick Harwood. Good afternoon, I'm Rick Harwood. <clears throat> I was principal of Global Connections High School on the Thai High School campus for 10 years, 2005 to 2015, and, which is in SeaTac, by the way, and I'm also a member of the Defenders of North SeaTac Park, and I'm here to speak about the Land Stewardship Plan. First of all, the students and families that they are part of who live in, attended that high school and live in that community are seriously impacted by the, the environment of the airport and its effect on their lively, their livelihoods and their breathing ability and uh, their ability to, to have a clean environment. And the proposed land stewardship plan does not appear to offer any process for slowing or halting other existing plan port proposals to remove trees from an estimated 112 acres of land in the Highline community and replace them with more industrial development. Altogether, not including North Sea Tech Park, the port proposes replacing an estimated 81 acres of air cleaning and cooling trees in SeaTac and Des Moines with heat and pollution generating industrial structures. Instead, your land steward plan, land stewardship plan uses a mitigation approach, also known as tree replacement, 
linking the preservation or rehabilitation of some natural areas with the destruction of others. Tree replacement is not a solution. The area near SeaTac Airport has among the sparsest tree canopy and highest levels of pollution, industrial heat and noise in the county. The plan preserves and expands the plan, unless the plan preserves and expands tree canopy, this problem will continue to persist and students and families will be impacted by the destruction of the environment that they live in. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Um, Andrea O'Farrell, I think that's what it is. Okay. Sorry, I can't. this happens every time I try to talk. I'm Andrea O'Farrell. I'm here with the defenders of North SeaTac Park and also Extinction Rebellion. And I would like to talk about sustainability and equity. <laughs> While it might be exciting that the port is going beyond minimum regulatory compliance in the land stewardship plan, what I see is that the need for airport operations expansion is a given. The port forecasts an average growth rate in total aircraft operations of 2.3% per year between 2014 and 2034. According to the SAMP, these forecasts are unconstrained. They don't include environmental or other impediments to aviation activity growth. Projections are being made with, with an unconstrained growth scenario. These untethered projections ignore what is going on around us. The Earth is telling us as we cross tipping points that we cannot continue to burn fossil fuels. Yet the port continues to make decisions based on projections based on unconstrained growth. That's fantasy. I don't see the sustainability there. In terms of equity, according to the LSP webinar, the port is looking at equity within its parcels when what we really need to be doing is comparing equity to tree cover in airport adjacent communities as compared with other local communities. It is not equitable for these adjacent communities to lose any of the tree canopy. Thank you. Thank you, Andrea. Next we have Michael Kasi. Kachi. 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 Get my readers on. <laughs> okay. So I'm uh, here to address the uh, council um, on the paradigm of growth and uh, and also the uh, the plans for expansion. Um, I believe I um, sent a specific uh, bibliography to each of the council members and um, I would like to just go over very briefly that paper that was part of it which was from James Hansen. Um, in it he summarizes that even at two degrees centigrade that goal is dead if policy is limited to emission reductions and plausible CO2 removal. Now, how do, you, how do you really understand that? In the big picture, our paradigm of expansion, growth, and development is probably dead in the water as well. And that's gotta be one of the most difficult things for any council 
and port authority in the country to deal with because the momentum of all of this growth and development has power. It just requires... Go ahead and finish your sentence. It requires that we change the way we think. That's a very difficult thing. Thanks, so Michael. with great respect, thank you very much for your thank, work. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and then last but certainly not least, we have Tom Hutchinson. Hello, my name's Tom. I'm here speaking for myself, not on behalf of any organization. And I'm here to talk about the sustainable uh, airport master plan, as many others have spoken about. The Port Commission acknowledges that pollution and climate, climate change-driven impacts detriment the health of human beings and reduce their lifespans. It also acknowledges that intact forests are one of the best solutions to preventing those impacts. And yet, time and again, the port proposes to destroy the forest north of SeaTac Airport. What does that mean? It means that you all here in your cushy downtown offices don't value the lives of the people who live in the communities around North SeaTac. And that disregard for life means that this is an illegitimate institution. The community has told you this over and over again, and so I'm just here to add my voice. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm telling you that you will not take that forest. We will stop you and we will fight you wherever and whenever you come for it. To summarize my testimony, fuck you. All right, that concludes our public commentary. <laughs> uh, is there anyone else present on the team's call or present in the room today who didn't sign up who wishes to address the commission? If so, please state and spell your name and state the topic related to the conduct of poor patients. Uh, yes. My name's Tori Gehring. Hi, Tori. Please. Okay. Please. If you could uh, state your name and the topic related to poor business, and then we'll start the clock. You have one minute. Yes. Uh, my name's Tori Gehring. I am the program director for Core Plus Maritime, and I am here to thank you for including Core Plus in your legislative agenda under workforce development. We are up to 26 uh, Core Plus Maritime locations in the state. Uh, we just gave out our Core Plus grants to schools, $550,000, and we officially have four in King County, Renton, Enumclaw, Bellevue, and Seattle, bringing on Renton, and a large portion went to Lummi, Tulalip Heritage, and Nia Bay High School, which is uh, mostly Macaw students, and I just wanna thank you for your support, and I'm available if you ever wanna talk about it. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for helping us end on a positive note. <laughs> All right, uh, last chance for anyone in the room or online who want, wishes to speak. Is that me? No, okay. Oh. We need to recess. All right, we're Let's gonna recess for a few that. minutes. It looks like, uh, well, let me first close out public. At this time, I'll, uh, actually, yeah, we'll just recess for a second and we'll close public comment, I'm sorry. All right, we're going to reconvene here.
I am reconvening the meeting of December 12th, 2023 after a brief recess, thanks to Microsoft and their Teams update or whatever it was. Um, it is 1.21 p.m. Um, so we just concluded public comment both in person and virtual. At this time, I'll ask the clerk to please give a synopsis of any written comments that were received for the record. Thank you, Mr. Commission President, members of the Commission, Executive Director Metric. We've received 12 written comments for today's meeting. These have been previously distributed and they will become a part of the meeting record today. So the first comes from Turner Bradcliffe and Marianne Peterson and they write to keep North SeaTac Park whole and to preserve critical forest and green space infrastructure on poor owned land in that near airport community. Stacy Oaks shared an article from the Tacoma Volcano News outlet and spoke in opposition to the cruise industry and to the effects she feels it has on the climate and the environment. The following people submitted written comments regarding the land stewardship plan and SAMP speaking in opposition to the siting of a warehouse project in the Riverton Heights area and development of port owned open space in near airport communities and in support of tree canopy preservation. This came from Peggy Prince, Martha Reed, Andrea Swickard, Diane Gaskell, Judy Akalatis, Andreas, Andrea Swickard. I think that that's a repeat. And then June Blue Spruce, Noemi Maxwell, and Michael Kachi all submitted written comments supporting their spoken comments here today. And then we have one um, submitted supporting preservation of North SeaTac forested areas in opposition to cruise ship pollution and in support of protecting whales and that came from Jennifer Godfrey and that concludes the written comments we've received today. Excellent. Thank you very much Clerk Hart. Hearing no further public testimony we'll move on to the consent agenda. Items on the consent agenda are considered routine and will be adopted by one motion. Items removed from the consent agenda will be considered separately immediately after adoption of remaining consent agenda items. At this time, the chair will entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda covering items 8A, 8B, 8C, 8D, 8E, 8F, 8G, 8H, 8I, 8J, and HK. So moved. Second. The motion was made and seconded. Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called for the approval of the consent agenda. For approval of consent agenda, beginning with Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you. Three ayes, zero nays for this item. Excellent. The motion passes. All right, moving on. We have two new items of business items today. Clerk Hart, please read the first into the record, and the Executive Director Metric will introduce the item. Thank you. This is agenda item 10A, authorization for the Executive Director to contract for services associated with curbside management of the on-demand taxi flat rate for hire program at the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport for a total cost of up to $14 million and a term of up to five years. Commissioners, this action fulfills a requirement outlined in Order 2023 TAC-03 passed earlier this year, which directed staff to continue to contract to pay for curbside management services. This new RFP will contain all current contract requirements with the commission directed additional focus on customer service, conflict, 
conflict resolution, reporting, collaboration on outreach, and then updated janitorial and updated janitorial standards. The initial term with options to renew will provide us with opportunity to negotiate additional focus areas to improve the customer experience, including the potential use of new technologies to increase efficiency. So the presenters this afternoon are Jeff Foster, Senior Manager, Aviation Business Development, and Jason Berg, Aviation Property Manager, and I guess Farless Lewis is uh, available from CPO as well, if there's questions on that. So, uh, so with that, I'll turn it over to Jeff. Thank you, Steve. Good afternoon, Commission President Cho, Commissioners, Executive Director Metric. My name is Jeff Foster, as Steve said. I'm the Senior Manager of Aviation Business Development in our Commercial Management Department. And with me is my colleague from Commercial Management as well, Jason Berg. Uh, we are here today to ask for authorization to procure contract procure and contract for services associated with curbside management of the on-demand taxi and flat rate for hire, or commonly just called the on-demand program at Seattle Tacoma International Airport. Next slide, please. We'll be providing some background relating to the curbside management function and briefly touch on the current agreement before highlighting some of the changes that we will implement with the new RFP procurement. Next slide. In prior iterations of the taxi program, curbside management had been provided by the on-demand concessionaire. During the last concessionaire's contract, the port took on the existing curbside management component and in March of 2019, we initiated the RFP procurement for the current curbside management services. Since that process began, the taxi program changed from a concession agreement to the original taxi pilot program in 2019 and then a uh, just recently, it was adopted a new program in earlier in 2023 that began in August of 2023 for five additional years. Next slide, please. The initial curbside contract that is currently in place was for a total of five years, consisting of a base term of two years with three one-year options, giving the port flexibility throughout the contracting process and through the variations of the taxi services taxi service iterations. The agreement is set to expire October 31st of 2024, which is precipitating the action before you today. The original request and the, that original procurement was for $12 million over five years, though we expect the actual cost over that contract to come in at just over $9 million. Today's request is for up to $14 million and is a cautious estimate based on expected changes and in consideration of significant inflationary pressures that we have seen, plus increased labor cost. This is, an, this is an up to figure, and we expect to have the costs come in under the maximum, and we'll always seek through the RFP process for the best value to the port. As we heard earlier today in public testimony, alternative two is listed in the memo as a cost of roughly $12 million for in-house curbside management. While that was a early estimate, unfortunately, it does not reflect updated cost. So I apologize for that. Um, the current cost is expected, if we were to bring it in-house, would be between 13 and $14 million just for a one-for-one -one of a staffing. It does not include additional cost that would come with bringing a service in-house. Bringing this in-house does have other concerns, including moving this to a fixed or structural cost permanently. Incorporating a new line of business within landside operations may also require additional staffing and organizational changes beyond just the 23 staff members for curbside management. 
Additionally, there remains some level of uncertainty in the overall taxi industry with two new ordinances, one with King County that recently passed and one at the City of Seattle that is expected to pass today. In addition to uh, as we move forward and potentially incorporating some aspects of virtual queue after we have robust conversations with the driver community and come back for commission authorization at some point in the future. Given those uncertainties, it is our best interest, we feel, to move forward and having it as an external contract where we maintain flexibility. Next slide. I'll turn it over to Jason to walk through some of the components of curbside management that's current and in the future, and then we'll have a brief conversation at the end and, and be happy to answer any questions. All right, thank you, Jeff, appreciate it. So what does curbside management do? Uh, currently, under the, the, the current con agreement, excuse me, is uh, they have general management of our taxi holding lot, which is our 160th lot, um, as well as uh, uh, some operational queuing areas, which include um, the third floor of the parking garage. Our current curbside management, they also dispatch our tax taxi vehicles from the 160th holding lot to our parking garage where the taxis would enter addition, additional staging area before they're dispatched to one of our curbs uh, on the north or south side. When a passenger is in need of an on-demand taxi, then our curbside manager will dispatch the taxis to our north or south curb where they manage the, the uh, loading of the passengers into the taxi as well. And one of our top priorities, obviously, is in, to ensure the safety and, um, and orderly operation of a taxi uh, curbside operation, which our curbside manager currently um, accomplishes this for us. Next slide, please. So within the new agreement, we're going to add a few different uh, additional items that we wanted to put in there. Um, one of those is additional focus on customer service and relationship management as well as conflict resolution training standards uh, and improved reporting of those training standards so we, we can make sure ensure compliance of the contractor. So just to touch on that real quick and to expand it into dispute resolution, uh, we have been working with the voluntary organization and well as internal staff uh, having discussions on dispute resolution as it relates to both the taxi order and the overall taxi program. Earlier this, um, throughout this process, we have made necessary changes to the scope of work for this procurement that would include, as Jason was just touching on, the improved customer service standards, de-escalation and conflict resolution training that will help to mitigate, we hope, many of the already relatively few disputes that we have and further reduce that. Um, additionally, the dispute resolution process that we intend to put is mostly from a port perspective and they would be handled with existing port staff and at no additional cost. And so the components of curbside management that touches dispute resolution, we have already made that change to the, to the scope of work. Everything else will be done through port staff keeping it consistent with existing GT operations as well as our other line of operators um, with a focus on building in that trust and the transparency with the driver community. And these, these two additional items are also in direct result from the, uh, the commission order that was passed in, in February as well. Uh, also in the new agreement will be an incre increased collaboration uh, with the port on outreach items uh, that we would need to, to help with the taxi community 
um, as well. And then also updated janitorial standards uh, to bring the 160th lot facility up, up to um, cleanliness standards, uh, which is similar to what we currently have in, our, in the airport office building, which is our Seattle standards. But this item here is in direct, um, it is a relation to direct feedback that we receive from the taxi community as well as the, the voluntary organization. So we thought it was a priority to put that in there as well. Next slide, please. So the new agreement is for the initial term, it will be a negotiable uh, initial term, effective November 1st of 2024, since the current agreement expires October 31st of 2024. With that, there'll be one year optional extension periods, which will not, uh, not to exceed a total of five years, which if the five years goes, the expiration would be October 31st of 2029. And our total cost request would include this initial uh, negotiable term plus the optional extension periods not to exceed five years. Also, all the additional requirements that we had just covered. And that is, concludes my presentation. I'd be happy to take any questions. Excellent. Any questions from my colleagues? Commissioner Mohammed. Thank you for the presentation. That was helpful, and thanks for clarifying um, some of the error that was in the, the memo. Um, going back to that, just the comparison between alternative one and two, um, did I hear you correctly that it's $14 million for option two? So the in-house version would be uh, based off of a revised look at what the staffing needs would be and the great approximate grades. Um, it was, I believe it was 13.75 million uh, right around there, plus additional cost of that always goes into hiring, plus technology, um, and there's other costs that come into play if we bring it in-house. But just a staffing perspective, it was right around 13.75 million for five years. And okay, so my other question as to that is when you look at the alternative one and alternative two, um, there are more cons associated with alternative one than there is alternative two. And while there might be maybe some additional dollars that gets incurred, it sounds like bringing it in-house, you guys describe it as a, a better <coughs> option. Was that, what was the thinking behind that? So just, so alternative one is the letting it expire without having a new um, procurement. So alternative three, I believe, is what you're referring to that has, um, and it's unfortunately, we should have had more cons on alternative two, because mm -hmm. there, there is more that goes into it. The main one is the structural permanent cost to increase to the port, whereas alternative three, we maintain flexibility. And I apologize for not having that clearly identified in the memo. No problem, that's fine. Thanks for clarifying it here. Um, and can you explain what the current contract is? Is it just like a month to month? No, the current contract is, uh, the original term was two years mm -hmm. with three additional one year options. So we are in the final option that expires October 31st, 2024. So the agreement, the current agreement will end October 31st, 2024, which is why we're before you today to seek authorization for procurement there is a lengthy process that comes into play in order to procure uh, a contract of this size and to ensure adequate transition should there be a change. That's really helpful. On slide six, you included um, increased collaboration with Port on Outreach. 
Is that outreach regarding virtual queuing, workforce development? What are you guys thinking on that? It's it's all of the above. It's just we wanted to make sure that we have more um, engagement with the curbside management and the driver community in our efforts as well as uh, other efforts. We felt that that was an area that we could improve on, and so we wanted to build that into this contract. So we this the new contract will require a certain level of engagement, and that will be a focus of when we evaluate for best value. Okay, and then my last sort of question is, um, if you guys decided to do virtual queuing or other other sort of, a different sort of direction with the buy-in, of course, from the driver community, um, how would you terminate that contract? There's, it sounds like there's flexibility in there. Um, would it be easier to terminate that contract with an outside person than if let's say you went with the alternative two where you do in-house and you hire everybody in-house, I would assume it'd be more difficult. Right? Yes, it would be more difficult for in-house when you have a fundamental change. And the contract, the current contract is structured with two years with three one-year options. So we had multiple off-ramps, if you will, to get out of the contract or to initiate amendments if we needed to. And if that brought down cost, you know, so be it. We anticipate something similar to this procurement, and we would maintain maximal, maximum flexibility to the port, but also balancing that with the best value. So that's going to be part of the procurement process. Whether it's going to be a two-year, that's going to be based off of the actual procurement process itself. Yeah, okay. That, that's perfect. I, I just wanted a little bit more information on that. Um, the virtual queuing, I feel like every time we bring that up, there's just a lot of concerns around it. The goal and the, the plan is to um, educate folks on it, to make sure the driver community understands exactly what the port needs when they're talking about virtual queuing and test it out, but we have no plans to implement that at this moment. Correct. Um, in 2024, we planned a robust outreach with the driver community focused solely on virtual queue, and we are approaching it without any expectations of what that would look like. We will bring in examples of what has worked at other airports, but we're not going to say that that would be, is that is not what we are proposing here. We want to hear from the driver community. We want to hear from the volunteer organization, other stakeholders, understand their concerns, address that, and then build something that could work for how SEA operates with our on-demand. Great. And so if we pass this item today, when will it be posted for bid? Uh, we anticipate having this out um, and publicized in early Q1 of 2024, um, ideally in January. Great. That concludes my questions. Awesome. Anything from Commissioner Hall? Great. Commissioner Mohammed addressed everything I had questions about. So, hearing no further questions for this item, is there a motion and a second? So moved. Second. Motion was made and seconded. Clerk Hart, please call the roll. Thank you. Beginning with Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you. Three eyes, zero nays for the Thank you, item. gentlemen. All right. We are moving along into the next item. Clerk Card, if you want to go ahead and read the next item to the record, uh, Executive Director Metrop will then introduce it. Thank you. This is agenda item 10B, authorization for the Executive Director to conduct a request for proposal with recommended adjustments per the November 14th, 2023 Commission briefing and to execute a lease and concession agreement with selected proposers for the 13 locations known as CCE-RFP 
at Seattle Tacoma International Airport associated with the new Concourse C expansion project. Commissioners, the ADR, Airport Dining and Retail Master Plan, master planning effort that the staff has recently completed reflects our commitment to creating a Pacific Northwest sense of place at SEA and holds true to our values of equity and inclusion, as well as our focus on providing opportunities for small and diverse businesses. Upon your approval, this RP for the newly created dining and retail spaces as part of our Concourse C expansion project will be the last concessionaire opportunities at SEA for many years. As noted last month when we briefed you on this item, we have identified several process improvements to the RFP process as well as specific opportunities to increase access for small businesses. This RFP contains key, mass, key changes to address those opportunities. While mandatory labor harmony agreements are not the sole driver of small business ADR challenges, we've heard from connect concessionaires that they are a barrier. We have heard this is not just, an, not just an initial study that we conducted on this topic, but also the supplemental interviews and surveys that port staff conducted more recently. I'm making a recommendation to modify the small business exemption to labor harmony agreements. The original barrier study suggested an exemption for bidders who have up to five units. We're recommend, recommending a number smaller than that, and actually we'll have discussion about that when that's presented. Uh, this is relatively modest change, but one with potential to make a, lar uh, make a large difference for some of our concessionaires. I look forward to your feedback and the action on this recommendation. So the presenters are Jeff Wolf, Director of Aviation Commercial Management, and Clea Moore, Senior Manager ADR. So with that, I'll turn it over to Jeff. Great, thank you. Uh, good afternoon, Commission President Joe, Commissioners, Executive Director Metric. I'm Jeff Wolf, Director of Aviation Commercial Management, and today I'm joined by my colleague, uh, Kalia Moore, Senior Manager of Airport Dining and Retail, or as we call it, ADR. Uh, I'll be handing it over to Kalia in just a moment to walk through uh, this request for authorization for the Concourse C Expansion, or CCE, uh, request for proposals, which will include an overview of the, the, the project as well as the new and exciting dining and retail opportunities within it. Um, but first of all, I want to uh, extend my gratitude and, and say thank you to everyone that joined us today, both in person and online, uh, to provide the public comment that we received and for their interest in this item. I think uh, it demonstrates and is a true testament to just how uh, important the CCE project is as part of the future airport development. So thank you very much for those of you that joined us. Um, as discussed, you may, uh, this may look familiar to you, the two of us up here. About a month ago on uh, November 14th, we were here and uh, provided a briefing on this topic. Uh, we're very excited about this upcoming opportunity. You may recall that you approved uh, in September uh, the, the total construction cost of up to $399 million. Uh, and it includes, this project includes the creation of, of just uh, wonderful new ADR spaces. Uh, as well as passenger amenities and even a performance stage, as you're aware. Um, and so with today's authorization, we can ensure that those dining and retail services will be available uh, to the traveling public uh, upon the facility opening. And as you know, uh, SEA is a Skytrax four-star rated airport, but uh, we're not stopping there. We're striving for the five-star, the elusive five-star. And it's, uh, very, it's very much like projects like this that will help us uh, in that pursuit. Um, so, as part of this authorization request, we'll be outlining the proposed RFP uh, for dining and retail spaces. And uh, just to be aware, this includes a review of the changes, as mentioned by Executive Director, uh, that, that we've made over the years to the process based on several factors, uh, direct tenant feedback, 
Uh, we've engaged in a lean process improvement study, um, obviously learnings from previous lease group RFPs, and then more recently, as alluded to earlier, is the barriers to entry study and the findings. Um, so today we are recommending your authorization for us to proceed with the RFP and future contract signings um, so that we can ensure that when this facility opens that we have the new dining and retail in advance of the 2026 FIFA World Cup that's uh, coming to Seattle. Um, so with that, thank you very much, and I will hand it over to Kalia to walk through uh, the presentation. Thank you so much, Jeff. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Uh, next slide, please. All right, the Concourse expansion. Next slide. And we'll start with just a couple of photos just to reorient you for what we're looking for. Um, this is one shot and a view from, the up, from one direction looking down to the Concourse expansion. Um, next slide, please. And an opposite view. Um, as we mentioned, this is a, the last opportunity for new space in the concourse in the entire airport um, until we have our SoCo Evo project, which will have new retail space provided. Next slide, please. Key components of this RFP timeline. The first being that the timing of the release of the Concourse C expansion is aligned with the timing of our overall completion of the Concourse C. Um, which, we, as Jeff mentioned, was presented to Commission on September 26th of this year. Over the last two years, we have constructed the first mezzanine level concepts in our program, and we've learned that the infrastructure of mezzanine concepts need to be established prior to the construction of our concourse level locations. Therefore, this RFP release must take place in enough time to ensure that we can make sure that our, our construction schedules for our mezzanine locations take place in advance of our concourse level spaces. Currently, our design and construction timelines take approximately two years, and so um, as you've seen in that fly-through video that has gone off everywhere, um, and we want to make sure that we have everything on time for our 2024, um, I'm sorry, our 2026 date. Next slide, please. Specific details for the RFP. We were releasing a total of 13 spaces as part of this RFP. Of that, we have seven locations that will be food and beverage within the Concourse C expansion. There will be one food and beverage location that is located pre-security. There will be two retail locations located within the Concourse C expansion. I'm sorry, three locations that are in the Concourse C expansion and two retail locations that are located outside of the Concourse C expansion. Of these locations, two of those locations will be dedicated, one retail and one food and beverage specific for, for small business participation only. Next slide, please. There will be a total of two multi-unit packages within the Concourse C RFP, one for retail and one for food and beverage. All other units will be released as single unit opportunities. <coughs> A key component of this RFP is that no company, large or small, can be awarded more than three spaces. This is an effort to ensure that opportunities are not cannibalized by any one company and also provides more opportunity for small business to participate. Any company that bids on multiple concepts is required to provide their priority of award as a part of their RFP submission. Additionally, companies may only submit one concept per location. Therefore, companies may not provide alternative concepts in their submissions or bid multiple times for the same location. There are a few locations that are part of the Concourse C expansion that will not be a part of the RFP process. 
The first being the six introductory kiosks, which undergo a separate process as they are limited term small business opportunities, and they will go be released as part, at a later date as a part of a smaller RFP process or RFI process. The last being space CC29, which is a replacement space for a tenant impacted by our duty free project, which was approved by commission on October 24th. Next slide, please. This is the first level, which is our concourse level. And this consists of three of our dining locations, as well as three of our retail locations within the concourse C expansion. Additionally, on this, this level, you can also see two retail locations in the surrounding area outside of, well, next to the concourse C expansion, as well as the pre-security dining location. Also in this area are the is the location within the concourse C expansion that is not a part of the RFP, and then current operations that are not impacted by this RFP. Next slide, please. The mezzanine location consists of four food and beverage locations, including two dedicated ancillary seating areas, which are allocated for two of the locations located on the mezzanine. Next slide, please. The proposed business terms are to expand from the current lease terms of 10 years to 12 years for food and beverage, and from eight years to 10 years for retail. This is a direct response to our lean process improvement findings related to the increased costs of design and construction at the airport and the amount of time needed to receive a return on investment as well as increased operational costs here. Staff has identified that the proposed terms address those items directly as well as maintains an appropriate amount of time to, in between the return on the investment as well as opening opportunities for new businesses to bid. The Labor Harmony Agreement Exemption Requirement will only apply to small business firms with three or more units at the time of award. Based on the financial information provided by the proposer as part of the RFP submittal, the port will verify if they meet the small business classification requirements utilizing the small business administration classification codes. Next slide, please. We will, and this is about the small business uh, first time bidders classes. We will publicize the events that we will be hosting regarding first time bidder classes via various advertisements, including our Port Vendor Connect systems, as well as local and national publications. But companies can also remain informed regarding upcoming opportunities directly by signing up on our ADR concessions inquiry form, which can be found by visiting our Explore SEA website and signing up for more information on the leasing page. Further details, including event registration for the first time bidders classes, as well as RFP and RFI opportunities within the ADR program will be sent directly to all companies who have signed up via the Explore SEA link in the presentation. Any direct questions regarding leasing opportunities can be submitted to the ADR RFP at portseattle.org email address. Next slide, please. And then we have some additional details specific to next steps. Um, I can stop here at this point as I do in case there are any questions. Yeah, so thank you so much for the presentation, Kalia and Jeff. Uh, I just want to clarify something and maybe offer some changes to the language because I think there's a few typos in both the memo and the presentation. The policy you're presenting is three units or more, correct? Yes. Okay. So in our memo, it actually says firms with less than three units, which is not accurate. 
So I would offer an amendment to the memo that says firms with three units or less will be exempt from this requirement. Mr. Commission President, is that a formal motion? It is a formal amendment. To the then amendment. we need to make the main motion on the floor first. Okay. If we could get the main motion on the floor, then an amendment would be in order. Okay. In that case, well, okay. Well, in that case, let's just go through questions first, and then, and then we'll, I'll make the motion at the very end. Um, I also want to note that on slide 10 of the presentation, if we can go back, uh, the the last bullet point is also a typo. It says labor harmony agreement requirement will apply for firms with three or more locations. It should just say more than three locations. Is that correct? Yes. Additionally, there is a typo. It should be small business firms okay. as well. It is not okay. large business. Okay. So let's just note that for the record um, as well. Um, I'll open up the questions. Um, um, let me start real quick. I think we just clarified it's um, that it's three. It's more than three units. Um, uh, I think one of the points of clarification that I think we need to make for the record for the public uh, is: is it three in absolute terms or three on aggregate? So, if for instance someone already has two units and then they were to bid and win two more or three more, they would have on aggregate five. Are, would that person still be exempt, or is this the exemption only applied to those who have an absolute number of three units? Okay, yeah. So it would be at the time in which, um, so if they currently have two and then they are awarded three, um, that would be at the time in which they are required to negotiate an LHA. Okay. okay. So they, so in absolute terms, it's three or more. Correct. So in your, yeah, absolute or aggregate, as you said. So it's dependent on what you have when you submit your, your bid, mm -hmm. as well as in what you're awarded. Okay. So if you've got two and you're awarded two, you get four. So then four would, that re would require an LHA because it's okay. more than the three. So if you have two and you're awarded one, that's three. So you're then still per, exempt. You'd be exempt you're under, exempt. under, an, uh, yeah. The a change to the language that we just talked about. Okay, great. Yeah. Thank you for that clarification. I think that's really important um, so that uh, people don't think that they can get around that rule by by being right under the radar. And then remind me again, what is the uh, revenue threshold for a small business? So it depends on the classification specifically. Yeah. Um, it can range somewhere for a food a restaurant specifically. It can range somewhere between ten to thirteen and a half million dollars. Okay, so and that's an average. Sorry, Jeff, if you want, did you want to? Add well, I just want to. Yeah, to, so it's all based on the industry codes that are out there, the NAICS. Um, so it depends on how you're classified as a business, either a full service or limited service. Right. I think the majority are right around thirteen and a half million. Okay. So. Yeah, so and the reason I ask that question is because I think there's a very valid concern within uh, some of the stakeholders that even though we may have a cap on the number of spaces that uh, a small business might own, um, th you might end up with a scenario where those three spaces are huge, right? It doesn't really take into account the footprint of that space. We're just saying three spaces, period. Mm -hmm. And I think the concern is that if you have, uh, you know, a tenant that has three very large spaces, right, uh, without naming any current tenants, um, you may end up with a situation where they have hundreds of employees, hundreds and hundreds of employees, just simply by the nature of the size of the, the, of the, 
of the operation, right? Which is not really reflective of necessarily how big that business is from a revenue standpoint. And so I think it's really important to emphasize that there's still a, a cap, so to speak, on the definition of a small business based on the, ca the category and classification that you, you just described, such that if we do end up in a scenario where someone might have two very large spaces and one smaller space, and they do end up with uh, a very, very high uh, revenue, right? When they hit, when they exceed that small business threshold, this uh, exemption on the labor harmony agreement no, no longer applies. Would you say that's a fair assessment yeah, of the it's policy? Completely accurate. That's right. So, and recall, this is so the way this will actually work. Uh, the, the mechanism of this will be that the first evaluation of these firms during the the bid proposal will be, are you a small business? And that's looking at that mm -hmm. revenue threshold. If you are, great, you move on, and you then will analyze how many units you, you would have under award. But if you've already exceeded that 13 and a half, you would not then apply or be eligible for the exemption. Okay, perfect. That, yeah. So I think that's just another way of skinning the cat, so to speak, in terms of addressing that concern that the, you know, I, I think in years past and even now, we have a headcount cap, right, which is very arbitrary, right. right, quite frankly. And you could have a small coffee shop that's like less than 100 square feet, but still have over, you know, potentially over 30 employees because of the nature of operating an airport business. And so for me, uh, the revenue uh, threshold makes much more sense. And I think that will be a better uh, benchmark for whether or not someone should be considered a small business and still get those exemptions as a small business. So I appreciate you uh, clarifying that for the record. And then lastly, and then I'll, I'll kick it over to my colleagues, is uh, one concern that I think some of our SBAC members have, have articulated in our discussions with them is actually the point at which an LHA is required or negotiated, right? I think, and I understand this as a former business owner, uh, that you know, as, as a business owner and entrepreneur, it's all about managing risk and costs. And at the end of the day, I think uh, there are substantial costs, legal fees and whatnot, to negotiating LHAs. Uh, and let me just preface this by saying, I don't think anyone that I've talked to is necessarily against the labor harmony agreement, right? Uh, but they are uh, for mitigating risks around the, the cost of LHAs. And for me, when I think about you know, the cost of in, how much I, I, as a business owner, have to invest in a business, I like to know my numbers before I accrue any more costs, right? And so uh, what that means is I need to know what my lease rate is, right? And for us, it's the, what's the mag, the rev share, all these different factors, right, that uh, are, are considered when, uh, when a business is trying to do a business with the Port of Seattle. And so one of the feedbacks that I got was like, we have this huge upfront cost in negotiating LHAs before we even signed a, a contract or know our numbers as a business doing business at the Port of Seattle. And I empathize with that, right? And so I think I, I brought this up last month uh, in our conversations and, and I asked the team to go back and look at the point at which an LHA is required to be negotiated and signed, right? And so my, my suggestion uh, and, and Executive Direct Metric, I think it would be helpful to get your support on this, but is for us to have, uh, first of all, to review that but also uh, I might suggest that we uh, require an LHA upon negotiation uh, and uh, an agreement between the, the tenant, right, potential tenant and the port, right, and have that LHA required to be signed within 90 days of a, a lease agreement or a contract with the port, 
right? So it gives our tenants absolute certainty in terms of whether or not they're going to be doing business at the port. They have their sense, a sense of their numbers. And then we give them a reasonable timeline, a couple months, to then negotiate with the labor unions to make sure that they get to a LHA that's reasonable. Right? But I think this is a, a reasonable compromise where we're not front-loading the burden on our small business tenants. Right? Uh, well, at the same time, uh, the, the, the labor side gets their assurance that an LHA will be signed. So I'm open to your feedback uh, and, and your thoughts, but that, that is my uh, suggestion. Thanks, Commissioner. I think, I think I'm following that directly in the timing, but I'd like to make sure we go back and circle back and, and just kind of talk about that, about the, the, the sequencing of that. I was just talking to council about that, but. Yeah, Pete, if you want to chime in. Uh, to help maybe clarify, uh, are you proposing that the concession contract is negotiated but not signed, and then the LHA uh, would then have to be signed before the concession agreement is also signed? Or well, you, or you yeah, about so, uh, yeah. you know, I w I'll let you guys figure out what's legally possible, yeah. but I think on principle, my point is that we want to give our potential tenants the most certainty yeah. as so possible on their business with us yeah. before we require them to yeah. to put a bunch of money into signing something, right? right? Because what if they sign an LHA, spend tens of thousands of dollars on legal fees, and then decide they don't want to do it? I think we can achieve Mr. That President, and yeah. be consistent with the purpose of the LHA. We understand that principle, and we, we can take a look at that. I'm discussing that. I'm seeing how we make how we put that into action. To do okay. That. Thank you. And I would, I would ask that you uh, make sure that is whatever revisions we make to that policy is a part of this new RFP. Do I have your commitment on that? Yes. We'll take a look. We'll absolutely take a look. Can I get a verbal yes, please? Yes. yes. Yeah, okay. Thank absolutely. you. Thank you. And then, Commissioner right. yeah. if I could just respond to your um, comment as it relates to the square footage and the kind of the size of the spaces. Okay. Um, comparatively, in Concourse C expansion, as far as the largest spaces that we have, we only have two relatively larger spaces. Okay. And they max out at about 4,000 square feet. One space at 4,000, one at three. The other ones are going to sit around a little over 1,000 square feet to about 2,500 square feet. Comparatively, our largest spaces in the program um, are about 14,000 square feet. So, oh, wow. um, okay. so we have one that's at 14 and one that's at about eight. And then you have the rest of this program is sitting around that 2,500. So most of our small business locations, even our full service restaurants and our larger spaces, are sitting around that 2,800 to 3,000 square feet space. Got it. Um, so even if they were to win a larger a larger yeah. amount, you're still much smaller compared great. to some of those larger spaces. All right. Thanks for that context. That's great. Uh, I'll kick it. So I apologize. I'll kick it over to my colleagues. Anyone have questions or comments? Commissioner Mohammed? Sure. Well, th thanks for the questions that you asked, President Cho. Um, they were helpful and were in alignment. I, I think what was most helpful is that clarification between how many units, right, that it's it's three units and not more than that. And if it's more than three units, that you would go into an, an LHA sort of negotiation process. Um, I just want to say that, you know, I think we really are working hard to strike a balance between supporting our labor unions, our workers, as well as small businesses. And I don't think that those things are should be in conflict with each other. Um, when I think about the people who work at SeaTac Airport and um, who might not directly work for the Port of Seattle, I see a lot of folks who are people of color, who identify as being minority, who are women, 
And when I also talk to the folks who are interested in um, opening up a small business at the airport, it's the same type of group of people who are really excited and are looking for that an opportunity to move away from just being an employee and to become an entrepreneur. And I think what we're doing today is creating that opportunity and um, trying to simplify the process as much as possible. And so striking that balance is, is not an easy thing to do, but I, I think we're moving in the, in the right direction. The question that I had is, uh, Kalia, will you be able to speak to just um, our current small businesses who are at the airport today, how they ensure quality jobs, um, ensuring fair wages, providing health insurance to their employee, um, what sort of measures or initiatives are put in place that some of our current small businesses are following? So as it relates to the um, minimum wage, so we do fall, uh, so our ADR program does fall under the city of SeaTac city ordinance as it relates to the minimum wage. So as you know, the city of SeaTac does have the highest minimum wage in the state of Washington, um, and that does have a 3.5% increase coming January 1st. Um, so that uh, so we do have, which I think is over $19 an hour, um, and so all of them do follow that um, requirement. As it relates to health care, they do provide us the same. The quality jobs aspect of the RFP process is not impacted whatsoever. That state, that remains the same. Everyone provides the same level of detail as it relates to whether or not they provide health care benefits and any other ancillary um, details regarding transportation subsidies and things of that nature. All of, the, all of our, whether they're small or large, they detail all those things out as part of the RFP, and those are still submitted. Um, everyone provides different things, and it really kind of depends on what employees really look for, right? Um, and so one of the things that we are looking at is what other things make you a valuable employee, a, a valuable employer mm -hmm. as part of being a, um, in our upcoming RFPs because it comes, because quality jobs can look very different mm -hmm. for different people, right? Um, and so those are kind of the steps that they all kind of go through and then we're collectively looking at other things as it relates to how we partner with, um, with our partners, our business partners, our tenants collectively throughout the airport, but as far as minimum wage and things of that nature, everyone follows that. And then they do additional things because I think it's pretty much, a, as you all know, it's difficult to hire in general. And so everybody kind of goes above that in general across the board. Great. Thank you for that answer. I'm looking forward to supporting this item today. It doesn't have to look perfect for everyone, but I think we are making progress and moving in the right sort of direction, and I appreciate that. Thank, Thank you, Commissioner Mohammed. Commissioner Calkins. Uh, yeah, I think you guys have gotten into the details for us on all the things that we've been um, wrangling over the last couple of months. The, I, I'll just make a comment, which I think is that um, oftentimes we're in these impossible bargains where we're, you know, having to undertake the Solomonic task of splitting the baby, and in this one we don't have to do that. This is a this is a bigger pie, and figuring out how. Um, various constituencies can benefit from uh, opportunities for growth at the airport. So I think we have um, threaded that needle in terms of finding a policy that um, provides real value to uh, a couple of areas that we're really hoping to expand, which is represented workers and uh, women minority uh, and small businesses at the airport. So. Good work, you guys. I know this was extremely challenging. I'm sure that you know this is going to be a pass and tweak thing. I think where we'll need to come back in a year or two and say how do we adjust it to 
um, for you know future potential um, ADR opportunities, but I think this is a really significant improvement. Well done. Here, here. All right. Um, with no further questions or comments, uh, I will entertain a motion and a second. Uh, I'll, well, before we do that, I think I, I just, you know, this is not easy work. This is probably one of the more contentious things that we've worked on. As you all know, my colleagues and I have met with stakeholders for the last several months. I know you have too. Um, but as if there's anything I've learned at the Port of Seattle over the last four years, it's like when, when nobody's perfectly happy, you're probably in the right spot. So um, I, appreciate, I appreciate the good work, and I will entertain the motion in a second. So moved. Second. Excellent. The motion has been made and seconded. If we can get a roll call, Clerk Hart. Do we need to do an amendment? Oh, ah, yes. Thank you amendment. so much. Uh, I will propose an amendment on the memo, uh, page two, uh, the end of the first paragraph, to amend the language from firms with less than three units will be exempt from this requirement to firms with three units or less will be exempt from this requirement. Do we have a motion and a second on that? So amendment? moved. Uh, second. All right. The motion on the amendment has been. Do we need to amend the PowerPoint as well? No. Okay. Um, no, that's just administrative. Okay, the motion is actually the memo in front of you. Yes. Excellent. Great. So then we'll uh, ask for a roll call vote on those amendment on that amendment. Exactly. Okay. So for a vote on the amendment, are we ready for that vote? There. Okay. Can we read it? One, sorry, one more time. Yeah. So it would say firms. With three units or less will be or exempt fewer, from this. Or fewer. Yes. <laughs> That's my little, my mom's an English teacher, and she would kill me <laughs> yes. if I didn't no, catch that. Okay. <laughs> fewer than three units? Three units? No, thank you. No. 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 It would be three units or fewer is or what you There we go. Yes. <laughs> wait, three, three is the number. Yes. You're killing me. All right. <laughs> Right, English is my second language. Uh, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> for with three units or fewer will be exempt from this requirement. <laughs> for the vote on the primary amendment, beginning with Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you. Three ayes, zero nays for the primary amendment. Excellent. The primary amendment passes. Now it will entertain, or you can just call the roll on uh, the passage of Main motion is the amended. Motion. Mm -hmm. As amended, yes. Are you ready for that? Yes. Okay. For the main motion as amended, beginning with Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you. Three ayes, zero nays Excellent. on the main motion as amended. The motion passes. Thank you, team, and congratulations. Thank Great you work. So Thank you much. very much. All right. We are ahead of schedule, which is how I like it. Moving to item 11, presentations and staff reports. Clerk Hart, please read the next item into the record and executive director will then introduce it. Mr. Commission President, we do have a request okay. to okay. switch 11A with 11B. We okay. have presenters that are running a little behind. No problem, so we will go ahead and make that uh, change and start with 11B. Okay, let me go ahead and read that into the record. Ready, right? Okay. Okay, 11B is the 2023 Public Art Program Annual Report. 
Commissioners, in 2019, under your leadership, we created the Port-Wide Arts and Cultural Program Policy Initiative. Earlier today, you authorized funding for the 2024 portion of the Art Capital Improvement Program. This annual report will provide you an update on the delivery of major art installations, collection restoration, asset management, status of funds, and how the team incorporates equity, diversity, and inclusion principles into its work. And the presenters this afternoon are, I'm looking for, Tommy Gregory, Senior Art Program Manager, and Annabelle Govic, uh, the Art Program Coordinator. Annabelle can handle it. <laughs> so I guess I turn it over to you, Annabelle. I thought I saw Mr. I, I thought I saw him yeah, too. He was just here. Yes. Steve, he's an here. artist. You, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, maybe I can kick it off, and I'm sure Tommy will join us in a minute. But um, good afternoon. Thank you for having us. We are very excited to present our annual report. Uh, this report highlights a year of significant achievements and collaboration efforts with the public art program. Uh, next slide, please. So first, we'll go over the capital projects. Next slide, please. Thank you. Um, okay. So in, in this slide, you see um, pictures, a lot of pictures of artists that we um, hired this year, thanks to um, the fact that you approved our CIP funding last year. Uh, you have a list of 26 artists, uh, 25 are working on CIP projects. Um, this this work is, you know, possible thanks to the collaboration of multiple capital project managers, um, aviation facilities and infrastructure department, and of course the CPO construction team. Um, thanks to who we closely engage with, 25 talented artists. Um, this is the most contract we ever had at the Port of Seattle uh, since the program was created in uh, the early 70s. Um, so it showcases for sure our robust engagement fostering artistic diversity. Do you want to add to that? Uh, thank you, and sorry for uh, stepping up for water at the wrong time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you're doing great on this. Uh, it's, it's all true. We're the uh, busiest public art program within a port system in the United States right now. Uh, Annabelle and I have been extremely fortunate to have a team and also have an extremely supportive board, which has led to this kind of success. Uh, and, and success is still to be determined. We're, we're working really hard to make sure that we deliver on all of these projects with all of these contracted artists. With an extremely diverse group, all coming from different backgrounds, medium specialties, uh, places throughout the country and the world. Um, and yeah, it's an exciting time to be handling visual culture for the Seattle. It's truly a job creator on so many levels, and uh, we have too many people to thank, but we are going to stay the course and make sure that we're successful in delivering a bulk of these before the FIFA uh, World Cup. Next slide, please. So I'm happy to talk about this one. This is a, a, a really unique uh, concept that we came up with through the CCE project. I don't know if Annabelle mentioned it earlier. Some of these contracted artists uh, are, are spread between projects uh, that are connected to the widened arrivals. Uh, some of those artists on that last slide are on the, uh, on the uh, Fisherman's Terminal side of the week. Uh, and then a uh, bulk of them are through CCE. Uh, so two of those artists, we came up with a very unique uh, concept last year. 
Uh, so this is our annual report to you all. We thought this is a great nugget of information to have. It's, to our knowledge, in the United States, we're the first public art program to provide not only the, uh, an opportunity for a permanent commission within our facility, the, the our awarded artists, uh, in, in this respect, it's Crystal Whirl, uh, an Alaska Native artist, and then Fumi Amano, a Seattle-based Asian American artist, uh, were awarded commissions at both the Pilchuck Glass School and the Museum of Glass in Tacoma. Extremely unique, I don't know anyone else has done that. So not only are they gonna have permanent works, but they're also gonna be able to, oh, that, was that off the whole time? Yes. I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> so, everyone heard some of that, right? Um, yes, uh, so the, yeah, this uh, Pilchuck Glass School and Museum of Glass uh, residency program is extremely unique. We're very proud to be the, the people to spearhead this and uh, get two new artists to kind of grow not only their personal public art practice, but their own private studio practice by working with these storied institutions. Next slide, please. Oh, Annabelle, I think you could talk about this. Is it there? Sure, yeah. Um, so the Port of Seattle Public Art Program is port-wide, so we do have um, a lot of projects going on at the airport, but we also have projects uh, here on the maritime site. Uh, this is one at Fisherman's Seminole, the Maritime Innovation Center Mink. Uh, two artists uh, were selected last year um, for that project. Um, on the left, you see the proposal by Thai Juvenile uh, Local Indigenous Artists. Um, it was pretty awesome to hear the story about the specific artwork and how he created it a long time ago and was just waiting for the right spot for this artwork and how he felt like Fisherman's Center was the right spot for this work. And then on the right, you have uh, a rendering uh, created by Shogo Oda uh, that will be uh, potentially created right across from the, the Mink building. So Tommy and I are very excited to work more and more with um, you know maritime project managers. Uh, yeah. Well, it's it's great to we're doing we're so busy at Seattle Tacoma International Airport. It is really great to show the public that the uh, the waterfront properties and other facilities at the port overseas are investing in the visual culture and putting in things of a monumental nature. This will be the biggest mural uh, the port of Seattle has ever done. Well, because it'll be the second one we've ever done. Uh, but extremely exciting, and a lot of this is, again, kudos to the board that we've had, but also uh, the efforts from the public art staff. Uh, Annabelle's been uh, working diligently to make sure that we're staying within our, our kind of policy and guidelines and also helping our other partners uh, outside of um, the aviation program. So next slide, please. Okay, so we can't have the busiest public art program in the United States for uh, aviation without taking care of our assets. It's been a huge, huge um, effort from when I first got hired to today uh, that we maintain our collection and that we have proper restoration and conservation of pieces that are in need. So 2023 was no different than previous years. We've we've prioritized those efforts, and you'll see on the next slide uh, some of the fruits of those uh, labors. Um, working very closely with our public art technician. The next slide will show you, um, uh, Annabelle was also had a hand in this, it was a good team effort, uh, but we relocated Pantapole, which was the port's first large sculptural uh, acquisition back in 19, uh, early 1970s. Uh, Pantapole was done by Ted Johnson, who was a local artist, uh, and um, 
it had been gracing the the concourse A grounds uh, from one side to the other over many many years. But recently, because of a concert, uh, con I'm sorry, construction project, uh, it had to be relocated. So we took that as an opportunity by having to remove it from the facility to take the efforts in restoring it. So we cleaned it, we uh, spruced up the uh, old base that it was on and recited it within concourse A. So that happened early uh, in 2023 and is um, uh, just last week was reinstalled. So you didn't see it for a year. It's because it was getting cleaned. Now it's uh, in, in opening day fresh um, condition and ready for the public who travels through concourse A to enjoy it. Next slide, please. So a lot of the projects that we are, are um, taking on when it comes to resites and conservation are uh, because of major construction projects. Uh, this this piece by William Morris or Billy Morris, as he is known, uh, in the locally to his glass blowing uh, uh, community. Um, this piece was in. Um, Gina Marie Lindsay Hall for many, many years. Uh, the location that it was sited in um, is where Checkpoint One modification pro uh, project is happening. So of course, we have to re uh, or disassemble the, the uh, case that it was in and then very, very safely move each delicate piece of blown glass uh, from Northwest Garning, which is the title of the artwork, and it's currently in storage. So we were, our public art technician, Pete Fleming, uh, worked with a, a local art handling company in uh, properly and safely relocating and storing these works. And we're hoping uh, that these this piece could be reinstalled, either uh, attached to another upcoming project, or we might wait a little longer if it, if it fits into the uh, SoCo Evo project and have it in the South Satellite. But you know, uh, uh, we'll, we'll see what next year uh, reveals. Uh, the next two slides, I think, are, are of this work, but let me just make sure of that, because it does show the, the uh, kind of efforts. It's not just magic. Taking artwork down safely does take a lot of preparation. It takes days. Moving anything in, uh, anything in an airport takes time, especially uh, uh, public art. So there's the team uh, safely wrapping each glasswork. And then the last slide will show the uh, steelwork being disassembled safely with hoists and gantries. Uh, and that also is being stored off-site. Uh, may not even use that um, case again. We might find a, a more uh, um, a different presentation method for it. But uh, in the interim, we are going to save it because it's it's still currently an asset. Okay, next slide. All right, ongoing conservation efforts. Uh, this has been a, a long one coming. Uh, Linda Beaumont's Spinning Our Wheels, which is located at the rental car facility, took on some damage. I think um, it's been reported on a couple of times. Uh, so I'm sorry that it's taken so long to get this point, but we're about to be at, uh, at um, full conservation mode. And we're working with a minority-owned business just adjacent to um, the rental car facility. So I'm glad that we're kind of staying local uh, to neighborhood uh, specialists in restoring this uh, pretty revered work by Linda Beaumont. Next slide, please. All right, so uh, Annabelle, I know I'm going to miss something on this because uh, conservation, maintenance, restoration, all super busy parts of the port. And for this annual report, we have to be very, you know, we have to have some brevity. We don't want to give you every nut and bolt that we moved in the airport or uh, on, on the uh, at Pier 69 Fisherman's Terminal. But we were really happy to restore the very first neon acquisition, uh, also done in uh, the early 70s by artist John Geis, and that is a slide on the right. And then another John in our collection, John Grade, uh, we cleaned his monumental piece called Boundary, which is in the North Satellite. Um, 
and th that was all done in-house. Uh, Pete Fleming and myself, I do have a background in conservation, so we, uh, um, we took those efforts on in the middle of the night and uh, made sure that no passengers, no passenger flow was disrupted. But uh, ongoing efforts, and in 2024, we'll uh, you know keep the you know keep the ball rolling in the right direction and, and keep our collection uh, as opening day fresh as possible. Okay, new installations in 2023. There were a lot, uh, and we're extremely happy to be able to uh, come out of or be coming out of this pandemic era, keeping artists busy. Like I said earlier, we we like to be a job creator for the creative economy of the local Seattle area and beyond. Uh, and 2023 was no different than the previous years. We we stayed the course. Uh, next slide will show you uh, all how we purchased. Um, our first neon work by an indigenous artist, uh, Dan Friday of, of uh, the Netflix series Blown Away fame, uh, but also just extremely revered artist in the region, uh, has very well collected, uh, has some public art pieces coming up on the waterfront. But uh, this is actually some um, good efforts by Annabelle Guavik here, who uh, was aware of this piece that Dan does, because he's not really known in the, in the neon world. He's more of a, a traditional, or not traditional, but a very innovative glassblower. Uh, but it was, we were lucky to be able to acquire this uh, Dan Friday piece and it is gracing the walls safely in concourse A and uh, this is also in a collaboration not only with the restroom modification team but also the um, architecture group for the uh, um, Seattle Tacoma International Airport. Uh, Heather Karch and Reagan uh, Reagan were a part of this um, this little nook that they built safely for the Dan Friday Neon. I should let you talk about that one. Ah, I'll let you talk about this one. Sure. Uh, this piece by Maya Petrich is at the entrance of the B9 restroom. Oh, thank you for bringing the video because it is a video work, so it <laughs> looks better if you can actually see it moving. Um, this is the first video work that type that we've been installing at the airport. Um, as of last night, we installed the second video work by local artist um, Emily Tanner McLean. Um, hoping to write a blog about these two um, local female artists because um, I think we do need to promote uh, those works at the airport. Um, but yeah, next time you go in the B concourse, make sure to stop by and see uh, Maya's piece. It's over at B9, correct? Mm -hmm. okay. Next slide, please. So we uh, had another big milestone, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, it was the first all-gender restroom at Seattle Tacoma International Airport. Uh, it was a, very much had a spotlight on it, and um, we were fortunate to work with the project team and the architecture group in uh, solidifying some art opportunities. Uh, we thought it was, it's an all-gender restroom, so we thought, how do we spread the wealth and represent a, a wide variety of, of local uh, artisans and professionals? Uh, so we'll, instead of giving that project budget to one artist or two artists, we spread the wealth and we ended up, um, if I'm not mistaken, it was 12 artists? 12 artists. So we ended up um, collecting works. We, instead of a commission, we handled an acquisition phase and uh, collected 12 different artists. Uh, we actually ended up collecting a few more pieces than the wall could accommodate, which is great, because that gives us the opportunity in, in upcoming years to refresh in that wall and, and keep it, uh, keep it uh, new for, for the regular uh, traveler. But with those additional pieces that didn't fit on that wall, you'll see it here. We moved them to an available space in Concourse A, which was in need of some uh, up upgrade and visual culture. So we put Juan Alonso and uh, Shaija Chen, who um, both make making work uh, of a two-dimensional nature, flat works, but um, you know, very unique 
unique and uh, helping diversify the collection in a way, uh, but also will eventually make it to that all-gender restroom. The next slide shows the, uh, that's in, Con this is in Concourse C, is the uh, adjacent to restroom, uh, the women's, outside of the women's restroom. This was existing work that we had, and we didn't want to, like, add to one wall and not complement the other. So now you're walking basically in this gallery scene uh, when you're, uh, traversing through Concourse A, and these works are uh, of Jackson Street uh, musicians uh, by Edward, Eduardo Calderon, and they've been in the collection for quite some time. So it was good to get them out of uh, kind of dark storage and up for the passengers to see. And it was strategic planning because at the same time uh, Eduardo Calderon was in a group exhibition at the Seattle Art Museum. So if you were lucky enough to be traveling through our airport and make it to the museum, you would see his work twice over. So really proud of that and extremely proud of this. This has been uh, probably one of the most exciting things we completed this year as a public art program and I think is, uh, at the airport is, is making this extremely user-friendly all-gender restroom and on the outside of this restroom, so you have two entrances on each side of this, this grand kind of salon style art wall um, uh, to the all-gender restroom, this thing is kind of greeting you before you walk in uh, or if you're just walking by. But um, like we said, there were 12 different artists represented this acquisition phase, predominantly LGBTQ artists and predominantly uh, Seattle-based artists. Um, worked with uh, a lot of local galleries and independent artists to make this uh, wall happen. So um, yeah, and worked with local frame shops. Like I said, job creator, uh, when you buy a work of art, a lot of people benefit from that. So um, uh, it's good to keep a lot of professionals busy. Next slide, please. Oh, great. Uh, so uh, hopping over to uh, something not at the airport, we were lucky to work with the World Trade Center, uh, another Port of Seattle uh, building, uh, just not a stone's throw away from Pier 69. Uh, there was a need for an artwork in this, uh, this kind of public zone. Um, and I, I, I don't know uh, how it kind of came about, but we had some awesome uh, camaraderie between um, our uh, EDD and our maritime uh, partners in searching for a work that fit that environment. So if you look out one side of those windows, you're seeing the sound. It's extremely beautiful. And, it, and day or night, uh, the water is, is extreme. It's, it's the reason to go hang out in that facility, from my opinion. So we acquired a work uh, from a local gallery in, in Georgetown, a woman-owned business. Uh, the gallery is called Studio E. And we got this amazing oil painting by an artist named uh, Adam Harrison and is now, just recently, within the last uh, two weeks, now installed at the World Trade Center. Uh, and it's, it's a monumental, or a, a pretty large scale oil on canvas, uh, and it's kind of depicting a really beautiful uh, nightscape, a, a, a waterscape, I should say. Uh, and it looks so much better in person. The photograph doesn't really do it justice. So next slide, please. So Annabelle, if you don't mind uh, taking this, because you, you've been quite uh, uh, busy in making sure that we're engaging the public, and this is one of those slides that, that shows that. Yeah, so we've been doing more tools than the previous years um, with internal partners and also external partners. Um, so internal partners, we had a tool with CPO, the CPO department, which is the picture in the middle. Um, we work with them so closely, but uh, we heard the feedback that, oh, we never see the end product. And uh, we decided to do a tool because um, it was like a thank you for like all of the help that they've been doing and working closely with them. Um, so we had this tool with C the, C the CPO department. We also had a one with some high school interns working closely with uh, Shannon Foss. And about external partners, we had a tool of the Museum of Flight. 
the Seattle Art Museum supporters uh, refract uh, that event, the glass event happening uh, this past October, and uh, soon a tour with the Sun Transit uh, employees. Um, so yeah, very excited to share public art, share the love, and uh, getting to share our collection. Next slide, please. 2023, uh, the pandemic really put uh, kind of the, the brakes on our um, temporary art endeavors. Uh, but it's extremely important from, from our standpoint to activate some of the spaces we have at the port. We're really fortunate to have some great properties and some great facilities and spaces to give artists uh, almost like a big blank canvas to play around and, and, and do something unique and something that's uh, one of a kind for the public to enjoy. So uh, luckily we've gotten support um, this past year to take on some of those um, those concepts and temporary art, I think we, we really ramped it up uh, coming out of this really strict kind of lockdown. Um, next slide will show uh, kind of the, the, the partnerships that develop from being able to create temporary spaces. Uh, the Bezos Foundation came to us some year back. Actually, if I'm not mistaken, I'm looking at somebody who helped uh, that collaboration. But uh, we were, uh, Commissioner Calkins said, us. <laughs> no, no, no. This, I don't think he, he was related to any of these. These were uh, some really creative um, uh, people working within the Bezos Foundation nonprofit that had an idea uh, to work with an immigrant artist and highlight the immigrant voices that this city's kind of built on, a lot of them. And um, so we worked with a, a local artist, or they worked with a local artist. I was basically uh, just kind of the arbiter and uh, trying to find a, an adequate space within our very busy uh, airport um, to, to house this really large uh, mural. Uh, and, and I say mural, it's, it's a mural printed on vinyl, so that, of course, is the temporary nature of it. But the Bezos Foundation was really generous in um, uh, curating an artist that fit the, that kind of um, fit everything they wanted, somebody who could work, uh, works in education, that has an immigrant story, a story immigrating to uh, Seattle area. And it was an artist, uh, Blanca, her last name, I always say her last name wrong, so I'm sorry to butcher it. San Santander. Santander, yeah. So, uh, but Blanca is an artist uh, who worked closely with immigrants, uh, students um, who were writing letters, uh, uh, like happy to, to be, um, kind of now in the Seattle community, and then they also uh, contributed drawings to her overall mural. So it's kind of a collaborative endeavor, uh, and it's printed on vinyl, and it's right inside of Gina Marie Lindsay Hall, and it really brightens up a space that was, you know, fairly monochromatic, uh, a lot of stainless steel, a lot of uh, uh, stonework in Terrazzo, and now it has uh, a pretty large-scale uh, mural uh, kind of highlighting our Mount Rainier there, uh, the view from the airport. So happy about that one. The next slide, uh, we're, we're going a little bit more into uh, the fine art realm, where we um, worked with local artists who are currently working on large-scale commissions. So they haven't really made anything on their airport at the airport yet, but they uh, contributed to our temporary art cases. So uh, Becky Feather is an artist based in Bremerton, Morgan Madison, an artist based in Ballard. But we also uh, this year showed works uh, during Black History Month where we worked with uh, um, an artist who's based out of Harlem, and that was from the generous uh, loan from Copland Del Rio Gallery. So Robert Pruitt, which is uh, shown on your right-hand side, showed these really cerebral and, and contemporary 
installations, and that was handled by uh, Pete Fleming, our public art technician. And then the top two show some of the, the, the permanent pieces from our collection. Uh, James Washington Jr., a, a very uh, recognized um, African-American sculptor. And then on the left was, I believe, is that Brad Story? Mm -hmm. uh, and so those were maquettes that are part of the uh, Port of Seattle's collection. But uh, you know something fresh, uh, keeping keeping those cases moving along and keeping new pieces in them, so the traveler always gets something different when they're coming through our airport. Uh, next slide. Um, this shows, I think, again, like talking about how busy we were. I, I talked to other colleagues. Annabelle and I spoke at the AAAE conference in Chicago this year, uh, which kind of confirmed how we are the busiest. Uh, uh, program, uh, but also we got to hear when I mentioned that we were doing this temporary neon installation. Um, just our other colleagues were shocked that we were doing that in addition to all the other things. Uh, and I was just like, I think this came from us also always having our ear to the ground and being really involved in the community. So we met this artist, Kelsey Fernkamp, who did uh, a, a, a temporary art installation of these monumental neon. Uh, um, sculptures at Pilchuck Glass School. So we, we, we asked him, would you be interested in doing that uh, on the cell lot, which is uh, where we did the uh, Red Sand project back in 2019. So we haven't done a, uh, that came down in 2020. So we haven't done a temporary art piece there in three years, uh, over three years. Uh, and Kelsey was more than up to the challenge. Uh, if if uh, we had some great uh, people who, who showed up on an extremely windy and rainy night, but the pictures were phenomenal. As soon as the rain stopped, the, the sunset came down, uh, went down, and uh, the neon just started to glow. Uh, but the endeavorers wanted to let the the, the uh, commission know and, and uh, ED Metric know this that, that these things don't happen in a vacuum. It came with a lot of planning, a lot of support from Lance Little, uh, Eric Gross, uh, our COO, but also talking to the FAA and the Air Traffic Control Tower to, con to let everybody know that these neon pieces aren't going to distract our pilots coming into the airport, and it, won't, it, it wouldn't distract our, our, our drivers coming to pick up their loved ones or, or colleagues at the airport, because uh, this, this, these neon pieces were visible from Arrivals Drive. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a great team effort. Uh, the artist had a great team of his own that uh, did this one night only installation. We're extremely proud of it. Um, as, uh, and hopefully we'll do more of a similar nature in uh, 2024. Yes. <laughs> next, we're going to cover the temporary stations on the maritime side. So next slide, please. Awesome. Thank you. Um, this is a project um, that I worked on this past summer with uh, project managers at Fishman's Terminal. This is a long time coming, <laughs> a mural at the port of Seattle. It is our first one. Um, it is on the edge at eight. Uh, it is very public, seeing from the road. Um, I had the pleasure with, uh, to work with a, a local artist, uh, Patrick Nguyen, known as Dosfi, um, here on this picture. Uh, the mural was up in only three days. People, you know, member of the public were like, walking by, bicycles, cars, and we got so many great feedback from the public. It was, it was very um, touching to hear the comments, so, yeah. Good hard work. This, this mural create, um, connects the communities and honors the maritime industry. So it's obviously now a landmark for fishermen's terminal. So um, it is our first mural, but um, 
it was a fantastic project. Hoping to do more next year. Um, yeah, thank you. I think next slide shows a few more uh, from this one here at Pier 69. So I, I could talk about this one just for a moment. Um, Morgan Madison is an artist that's actually contracted uh, with us to do a piece for the uh, North Main Terminal uh, for a permanent piece uh, associated with that major construction project. But at the exact same time uh, that he was getting selected for that, he reached out to us unrelated to that project and said that he'd uh, been awarded a grant and needed a place to, to show his work in order to be in compliance with that grant. And we love the lobby here for, uh, for temporary art installations when, the, when, when they do fit the environment. These pieces had a lot to do, we saw with our, our maritime kind of endeavors here. Um, there's, there's a lot of biological references as well as kind of like seaport uh, objects or related objects. Uh, the great story about this, the reason we wanted to include this slide is because uh, Morgan was trying to be in compliance with the grant, so we got him this temporary exhibit. Uh, and at the same time, there was an artist, if you all don't know this, city of Seattle's been going through some transitions, whether it's because of cost of living or other uh, or, or rentals, but um, art, storied art inst uh, uh, institutions and museums and galleries have been closing in 2023. Our annual report, it's trying to be happy and, and positive. That was kind of a low point within the art community, so we tried to pick up where certain things were, uh, kind of leaving off where the artists didn't have the opportunities that they might have had uh, in previous years. So Pier 69's headquarters had turned into a great little venue uh, for uh, people being able to show their work that they were, uh, you know, I mean, this was a year and a half in the making for, for Morgan. Uh, the great, greater part of the story is that there's another artist named Grace Flott who um, um, also had uh, to be in compliance with the grant opportunity that she got. And the, she was gonna show at the Museum of Museums, which sadly closed in September. Uh, her, her, the closing of that museum, actually Commissioner Cho met her when she was looking for another venue. And we, we all thought, yeah, you know, this, this lobby is a great spot for this really strong uh, painting show that she wanted to do. That meant that Morgan Madison had to vacate his show before the end of the year because she had to show her work to be in compliance with her grant. Morgan, showing true artist camaraderie, was more than happy to vacate uh, his, his um, temporary exhibit uh, opportunity here early so she could be in before the end of the year and uh, have that exhibit. So anyway, the next slide shows you Grace's work. Uh, and um, there's Commissioner Cho there. We're looking at the examples of the work. And if you're uh, really lucky in two days, you could uh, be a part of the opening reception uh, here at the Pier 69 lobby, uh, celebrating Grace's work, which um, is as elegant as these uh, paintings are and as technically skilled as she is as an artist, they have a really strong subject matter. She paints uh, burn survivors from a community that she's a part of as, as being a burn survivor herself. So um, anyway, I hope that, uh, you gotta just thank everybody for allowing us the kind of autonomy and flexibility to create these opportunities for artists in our region. Uh, we totally could not do that without commission support, without uh, support at, at port headquarters, and then with the board. Um, and then of course the team. I, 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 it's the end of the year, and I think that I gotta thank the public art team. It's small, but strong. <laughs> I think I gained some weight since I took this picture. I look really slim in this picture. Holiday season. <laughs> I think you look great. <laughs> Thanks. You'll get your check in the mail. <laughs> but that, uh, if there are no uh, questions or concerns, we're happy to field some and uh, hoping to maintain. Uh, oh, yeah. Go ahead, Annabelle. Sorry. I just have um, a few um, like closing remarks. Um, so 2023 marks a milestone for the public art program. 
Um, for the first time since it started back in the early 70s, the program proudly features collaboration with a record number of artists. Um, this unprecedented engagement underscores the program's growth, dynamism, and enduring commitment to fostering artistic talent within our community, the nation, and beyond. Thank you for your ongoing support, and we look forward to building on these successes uh, this upcoming year. Thank you. Thank you. All right, any questions or comments from my colleagues? Commissioner Calkins. All right, I'll start. Um, first off, I, this program is just so much joy. Um, and uh, I was reminded a few days ago while um, reading an article about uh, what was then called the Public Works of Art Project, which was the predecessor to the Works Projects Administration Art Program started in 1934, they talked about how it, they uh, first started this as a, you know, an attempt to support artists in the midst of the um, Great Depression. And one of the first works was the murals on the outside of Coit Tower in San Francisco as a sort of pilot to see, you know, what would the public response to this be? Would it function to support artists? And um, so as we were talking about our own murals, it was really encouraging. A, a few things about it. It, it offers an opportunity to um, use art as messaging, too. And I think what we're capturing here is a sense of how do we convey our values through art. Um, and I know that you all think very, really conscientiously about um, who's commissioned, what you acquire. Um, but I do think you know, this is an opportunity for us to share, you know, as an institution, what it is we value. And so you look at that proposed mural of the uh, saner on the beach, that's really incredible. I think that there's a, a level of um, uh, understanding that comes just looking at that where no number of words could convey that. The, the second thing um, I was curious about is a question. With the passage of the doors open levy, $100 million uh, levy for uh, King County art, is there an opportunity for us to use uh, that as a, 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 a potential collaboration? You know, as both a place where some of that art might be displayed, but also using our funds and their funds to support even a, a sort of symbiotic um, sum is greater than the parts kind of collaboration. That's a fantastic question, and that's something that uh, cities like Chicago and Houston have done, kind of pooling their resources and getting more bang for their buck. Uh, I think that if, if uh, Annabelle knows, I just said yes to being on another public art committee, which would be like, I think, my fourth one. Uh, so I'm, I'm now on King County's as well, and um, just as an advisory member, and I'm hoping that we, I could ask those questions and see what kind of re uh, answers I could bring back to the, the commission. But uh, I, I think it's a fantastic idea, and, I, and we should definitely investigate it. And then last question is, do we have a, um, some sort of docent, maybe a, a, a docent on this SEA app or something where, I mean, if you've got two hours at the airport, how do you access mm -hmm. a guide? So we're, we've been trying to we've been trying to be a little bit innovative with that, and it, again, I have to com, uh, commend Annabelle on her efforts because a couple of years back she worked with the innovation team with uh, uh, Seattle Tacoma International Airport um, in try, in presenting uh, the concept of using beacons, which are these little nodes that get placed strategically throughout the airport, uh, and then we could you know bring them to Pier 69 even, but uh, starting off there. Um, 
they ping to your phone. Can I let you describe it? It's your idea. Yeah. <laughs> so, <go ahead. laughs> we, we started uh, implementing the beacon idea. I think it was last year. I think now total we have about 10 beacons at the airport. Uh, it's pretty simple. You just walk by it and you will get a ping notification on your phone saying, hey, you're walking by a public art piece. Uh, it will tell you the title of the piece, name of the artist, do you want to know more? And then you click on it, it takes you to our website, gives you more information. It is a work in progress. <laughs> we have over 100 hours at the airport, and I think we only have, we have only over 15 a, on the website. Yeah, we have over 100 hours at the airport right now. Right. By 2025, we'll, we're adding, what, significantly more, about 25 more pieces. And some of those are of... of huge scale and some of them are intimate uh, and I think the docent idea is something we have talked about aside from the beacons which I think are slow coming but they're gonna be really successful when they're done um, but uh, a docent idea with um, collaborating with our customer services group and talking to Julie Collins and her team I think that's a uh, something that could come to reality towards the end of 2024 it is it is also like we, we're trying to take on so much I think we just also have to realize that we want to be able to deliver successfully in all these projects and all of these really great ideas um, not only for FIFA 2025 but just uh, there's a few projects that are supposed to end by the end of 2024 and just want to make sure that the the, the team is is happy uh, supported and that we also um, are looking at uh, the evolution of this program because we do have some awesome pieces here and I have uh, luckily did a Schmidt Ocean Institute tour uh, this year I forgot that wasn't on our annual report slide but that was a successful group of about what, 30 scientists who are interested in our public art collection at Pier 69 so there are ways to kind of trim the hedges let people in and also inform internal uh, um, staff members on that collection so they can talk about it so it's not just Annabel and I predominantly trying to uh, you know really express the excitement of an extremely storied public art collection thank you excellent Commissioner Mohammed anything yeah sure um, well first of all I just want to thank you guys for the presentation and I love hearing you guys present and show us the, these amazing artworks and your passion comes through Annabelle um, and it's great to be able to do work that you care deeply about and it's obvious from from your presentation I wanted to know what's the size of you guys team is it just you question. and Tom is it the two of you for when I first got hired it was just Tommy yeah and then luckily I did have a, a, a contractor who worked with us and then uh, Annabelle was the second edition and to let you know that this is this is really great uh, I think for the Port of Seattle we were the first two hired with uh, degrees multiple degrees in the field so we're bringing a little a little bit more uh, expertise when it comes to conservation and maintenance and also art history and collection management so uh, Annabelle came on and then more recently um, Pete Fleming came on as a public art technician and then mm. most recently with this year in July uh, we brought over from external relations uh, Christine Lee who's supposed to be helping us with uh, contract um, services because we have all these artists in and it's contracts aren't their area of expertise so they do need a little more guidance uh, so we have a four-person four staff uh, we did a strategic plan in 2020 uh, actually the strategic plan was written in 2019, I think presented and adopted in 2020, where it shows we were hoping to uh, add a, a, a public art manager, which mm -hmm. I think is very much necessary, again, for us to be able to deliver all of the great projects that we're taking on in a successful way by 2025. But. Uh, yeah, I, I, I see like blue skies ahead. We're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to be one of the, the top 10 uh, programs in the country. And I'm hoping that in 2024 we'll be listed as the top five. Uh, if we're lucky, even better. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, 
as busy as we are, it does. It, it, we, we are a, a, a lean staff, a lean, strong staff. Yeah, it's such a sophisticated art program that you guys are running. And um, I yeah, I want to thank you guys both for your work and, and your, your t team at large. Thank you. I mean, it's, uh, it is, like you said, it's, it's, it's definitely a passion job. But uh, I do, we, yep. see the, we see the benefits from the traveling public and from the people who are visiting our facilities. Great. All right. Um, I just want to make a quick kind of end, but I just want to say I love how you've risen up from being at the front of the desk at the port to, to leading our Thank art you. project, our project with Tom. So I really love how much uh, you've grown since you've joined us. Uh, that will conclude uh, with no further questions or comments regarding this item. Uh, thank you both for presenting, um, and we will move on to our next presentation, which is 11A. Um, thank you all. Given that there's only three of us, and we would lose a quorum if we were to, if any one of us would go to the bathroom, I was going to suggest that we take a quick three-minute bathroom break, if that's okay, um, and the folks who are presenting next can get themselves ready. But I, I, I would ask that we recess for three minutes, take a quick bathroom break, and come back at the latest 2.55. Thank you all. All right, we are coming back from research, or research, recess. The time is now 2.57 p.m. We are on our last item of business for today. Um, Clerk Hart, if you want to read the item into the record, and the executive director will then introduce it. Thank you. This is agenda item 11A, the draft 2024 state legislative agenda briefing. The commissioners, the, the success of the port is deeply tied to our work with, with the governor and the state legislature. The state provides key funding, regulation, and policy that not only helps with our infrastructure needs, but also allows us to be more effectively, to more effectively pursue our environmental equity, economic development, and near port community quality of life initiatives. Our new senior, well, I'd say rel not new, new, but relatively new senior uh, government relations manager, John Flanagan, has met with you and the executive leadership team to discuss priorities for 2024 and has incorporated that feedback into the draft of legislative agenda before you today. We're also pleased to be joined by our partners from the Association of Washington Businesses Business and uh, Washington Public Ports of Association, who will help provide important context on the current political environment, as well as how to how our priorities mesh with other ports and employers throughout the state. The 2024 legislation session will be a short, short session focused on corrections to the budget, but there are many opportunities for progress on our priorities. Look forward to hearing from our presenters and taking your feedback on the draft, draft legislative agenda before it's finalized at your first commission meeting in January. So our presenters are John Flanagan, Senior Government Relations Manager, and Eric Fitch, uh, Executive Director of WPPA, and David Mastin, Vice President of Government Affairs, Association of Washington Businesses. Business. So with that, I'll turn it over to um, John. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you, Executive Director Metric. Uh, as Steve mentioned, my name is John Flanagan, Senior State Government Relations Manager here at the Port. Uh, glad to be here today for my first formal presentation to the Commission regarding our 2024 State Legislative Agenda. Uh, this presentation is organized in six parts. Uh, I hope to move through it quickly to keep us within the time allotted. First, I'll give you an overview, quick snapshot of the coming session, high-level rundown of major issues that will be covered, and provide an overview of the budget. 
Uh, second, uh, legislative priorities. I'll provide a reminder of some of the successes and unfinished business from last session, run through priority legislative and budget items for 2024. Third, I'll invite our friends up, as Steve mentioned, from the WPPA and AWB to talk about shared priorities. Uh, fourth, I'll cover some legacy issue areas. What I mean by that is perennial issues that consist of long-held positions from the port, give a couple updates where we expect progress this session. Fifth, I'll lay out where we go from here, and sixth, I will open it for questions. So next slide, please. What to expect. Um, as you're all aware, this is a short session commencing second week of January, wrapping up in early March. Supplemental budget year, as Steve mentioned, and the general election in 2024 will cause major shifts in statewide elected offices as well as the State House and Senate. At a high level, I think the five biggest issues that don't necessarily affect us that we expect the legislature to make progress on this year include dealing with transportation project cost overruns and fish passage barriers, uh, behavioral health, the opioid crisis, mental health. Uh, public safety, policing and the Blake decision, uh, housing and homelessness, and then the Climate Commitment Act and uh, environmental programming. Um, really quick on the Climate Commitment Act, because it's been in the news quite a bit. Um, the campaign aiming to repeal the CCA submitted signatures to the Secretary of State's office in November. Uh, the campaign reported having more than enough signatures to qualify. Once those signatures are verified, the initiative will head to the legislature. From there, they have three choices. They can, one, approve the initiative, meaning it becomes law. CCA is repealed. That's unlikely overall to happen. Uh, two, they take no action, which is most likely, which means it appears on the November ballot. Or three, the legislature offers and passes an alternative, uh, meaning that they both the alternative and the repeal initiative would appear on the ballot. Um, I will say quickly, because I'm about to talk about the budget, if the CCA is repealed, it has huge budget implications. Um, overall, the state's budget is somewhat precarious. Uh, the operating budget has a large surplus, as I mentioned, mainly due to CCA revenues, but also due to a uh, large and unanticipated number of reversions and positive uh, revenue collections. Um, however, the transportation budget faces some major challenges due mainly to project cost overruns, which have been in the news a little bit, um, and existing fish passage barrier obligations. I'll talk more about the transportation budget on a future slide. Uh, the capital budget similarly constrained to a much lesser degree uh, due to impacts from project cost overruns and inflation. Um, there is no expectation this year that the legislature will raise significant revenues, um, so funding gaps will need to be addressed mostly within existing resources, just for awareness. Without going into too much detail about the overall economy, the November economic and revenue forecast was pretty positive. Uh, both personal income and employment in Washington continue to trend in positive directions. Um, things are anticipated to go well in 2024 and 2025. Uh, for the current biennium, revenue collections are at plus 191 million. In the next biennium, they're at plus 579 million. So overall, things look well. Uh, with the inclusion of CCA revenues, which is, I think, 1.5 billion so far, uh, the overall outlook for the budget is at plus 207, or sorry, 2.7 billion in 23-25 and 1.2 billion in 25-27. I'll also briefly note that Ecology had another CCA auction last week. There are no results in from that, but overall CCA collection should be above 2 billion, we expect. The agenda development process, uh, the port made progress last session on several important longstanding issues. Uh, shout out to Eric Fitch, who will be up here in a moment for laying some groundwork there, and to Pierce Edwards for stepping into the state GR role, pulling double duty last session. I also want to make sure to acknowledge our contract lobbyists from last session, Trent House, who is here today, and Brooke Davies, who is on contract for their significant contributions. Um, as a reminder, some of the successes from last session include passing the two to one match bill, benefiting the uh, South, King County, or, sorry, South King County Community Impact Fund, 
providing uh, funding for quiet sound, incentives for the production and use of sustainable aviation fuels, uh, funding the Seaport Alliance drayage truck demonstration project, shore power demonstration project, securing funding for Puget Sound Gateway, and I could go on, but I will not. Um, at the close of the 2023 session, the team also identified several unfinished priorities, which included passing the Transit-Oriented Development Bill, the RAP Act, and updating the Port's authority around civil asset forfeiture. I will talk about each of those on some upcoming slides. And just as a reminder, our draft agenda is a document that evolves every year. So where we've been successful and there's no additional advocacy required, things will come out. Some of those successes from prior sessions will show up in our legacy positions, which I'll run through. Um, and if we need to defend an investment or policy, they're present. Um, some of our high priority items from last session will also obviously come up this session. And with that, I will kind of hop in here. Next slide, please. We are starting with a group of identified priorities for this coming session that fall under what I've called innovative, equitable, and diverse economy. First, we have a green jobs and workforce ask. Given the massive and unprecedented availability of both state and federal resources geared towards the green economy, we're expecting to see action at the state this uh, session to establish a green jobs workforce program with the goal of encouraging climate-focused innovation and benefiting a wide array of workers and communities. We don't yet know what will be funded in the governor's budget, but the Department of Commerce submitted a decision package earlier this year asking for $250 million from Climate Commitment Act revenues for this purpose. The initiative would put state resources towards two distinct things. One, providing local match on existing federal programs like the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, in order to maximize use and availability of those federal funds. And then two, grants to projects that provide high-wage, clean job creation in Washington. So funds would go towards risk reduction, uh, investments in public and private infrastructure to enhance industrial lands, or uh, be direct investments in workforce development programs to attract and train the folks necessary to uh, be those clean job workforce. Uh, a couple examples of projects uh, that grants may go to include things like renewable generation or electric transmission infrastructure, uh, consumer residential decarbonization projects like heat pumps or planning and project execution, or just direct worker training programs, just to name a few. Moving on to the next thing there, tourism. Last session, the legislature passed House Bill 12, ooh, sorry, go back one slide. Right, I meant the, the middle thing there, I should say. Uh, last session, the uh, legislature passed House Bill 1258, which aimed to increase tourism funding by updating the statewide tourism marketing account and altering the match requirement on that account from two to one match to a one to one match. The state operating budget provided 4.5 million, so the total provided last year was around $9 million. That said, Washington State still trails far behind other comparable states like Oregon, Montana, Utah, and technically even Idaho in terms of state funding dedicated towards tourism. Uh, State's Tourism Authority needs additional resources just to be able to deliver on current programming. Uh, last conversation we had with them, they were assuming a need for at least 18 to $20 million just to operate ongoing programs, let alone build our tourism economy. We've engaged in conversations with the Tourism Authority uh, about what kinds of changes might be necessary to get them to where they need to be. Uh, this session, it looks like we're looking for additional investments in the operating budget, and we are likely to help them pursue legislation in 2025, which obviously I would come and talk to you about next year. And that third thing up currently, uh, funding economic development programming. Uh, coming out of the 2023 session, the legislature chose not to continue funding for several ongoing economic development programs and otherwise underfund economic development initiatives. Uh, it's a perennial issue with how the state chooses to fund or rather not fund uh, eco-devo programming. Uh, this priority is kind of a catch-all 
uh, to provide support for renewed investments in economic development programs that champion innovation, aid the global competitiveness of our region, and provide critical support to international business. Uh, some examples of programs that fit into this bucket include things like Global Washington, which helps small business access global supply chains to meet the demand for increased manufacturing and provide representation in foreign markets. The state's uh, Innovation Cluster Accelerator Program, or ICAP, which makes strategic and focused investments to grow key sectors of the economy, several of which focus specifically on port-related industries, uh, or the Small Business Resiliency Network, which provides culturally and linguistically relevant assistance and other business support at no cost to small businesses and nonprofits, with an emphasis on those uh, owned by historically marginalized and underserved persons, um, or even just basic programs like the Small Business Export Assistance Program and the Export Voucher Program. Next slide, please. Increasing access to equitable benefits. Um, this encompasses several priorities recommended by Commission and by members of the Port's Equity Division. Generally, this proposes that the Port support state-level efforts to increase Port employees' access to equitable benefits. So that would include things like monitoring access to child care opportunities for Port employees and to increase child care opportunities for uh, employees at all Port facilities. As a reminder, following the adoption of the 2023 State Legislative Agenda last November, the Commission amended and readopted an agenda uh, in the middle of session to include supporting efforts to increase child care facilities uh, and opportunities report. Um, the Board supported passage of House Bill 1199 last year, uh, which created additional opportunities for practitioners to get into the business of providing child care. We don't anticipate any major policies to pass this year that increase child care opportunities, but there are several existing bills that will become active again when the session begins. Dave Mastin from AWB will talk about ongoing implementation of some past child care initiatives when he is up here in a minute. Um, changing gears slightly, uh, this priority also includes monitoring proposals that address issues affecting pay equity and supporting policies that conform with or benefit the port's internally adopted pay equity, equity philosophies. Uh, nothing specific to note here, um, but it came up as a priority for staff, so included. Um, lastly, uh, this bucket includes uh, supporting policies that reasonably and responsibly increase equitable health care outcomes for port employees. An example of a policy identified internally that fits here is uh, House Bill 1151, which will be worked on this year. It requires insurance uh, coverage for workers so that they're able to cover access to fertility services. Um, that's something the port is actually already moving towards, but having uh, the statewide bill pass as well would obviously be helpful. Um, moving on here to diversity in contracting. Uh, this involves monitoring and supporting ongoing efforts to increase opportunity in contracting at the state level, uh, including support for legislative changes that may be necessary to demonstrably increase the share of grants and contracts awarded to traditionally marginalized populations. Um, this mainly focuses on an ongoing rulemaking at WashDOT. Um, they initiated that in September. Uh, and I can get into some additional background if necessary, but the main takeaway is that WashDOT is looking to create flexibility to be intentional about who they hire and how that process plays out. The proposed rule could be invalidated due to existing state law. Um, so the port's contracting experts are following it closely in case the commission wants to eventually pursue adopting a similar policy internally. I've included this in our priority agenda to give the port necessary flexibility to push for any legislative solutions that might be necessary to carry forward that work in the future. Next slide, please. On our next uh, group of priorities, which I've called protecting transportation investments. Um, and here I'll give you a quick snapshot of the transportation budget as well, which I will start by saying is somewhat grim. Uh, due to a myriad of factors, transportation project cost increases are escalating rapidly. Uh, it's highly unlikely that additional transportation revenue will be generated during the 2024 legislative session. Uh, the best example of this issue recently is the cost overrun associated with the SR520 Portage Bay project. That's the one that made the Seattle Times. 
Um, the 2022 projected cost estimate was just over $800 million, and the apparent best value bid came in at around $1.3 billion, uh, so massive increase. Uh, to be clear, these price increases and cost overruns are happening nationwide, uh, but projects in Washington have seen higher than average cost increases. Uh, the National Highway Construction Cost Index recently reported a 54% increase in highway construction costs nationally between 2021 and 2023. Um, WashDOT also recently began to report new major cost assumptions related to culverts and fish passage barrier removal. Uh, as a reminder, the state's required per a federal injunction to restore 90% of blocked fish habitat by 2030. The state allocated $3.8 billion towards that effort based on project costs from 2018. As of 2023, WashDOT has discovered that that initial $3.8 billion will get us to 80% compliance with the federal injunction. Getting to 90%, which is required by the injunction, will require somewhere between another 3.8 and $4 billion. That's all, again, by 2030. Um, I can explain the why, uh, cost increases separately, but the takeaway is that meeting our 2030 compliance target will require the state to invest an additional $725 million this biennium, basically this year, uh, and much, much more in the following two biennia, uh, somewhere to the tune of about $1.5 billion each. Um, given the bleak outlook for transportation funding, our advocacy this year is very simple. Uh, first, proposing that the port advocate in favor of any uh, necessary policy or budgetary changes to ensure final delivery of the Puget Sound Gateway project without project delays or extension of current timelines, which I think the final part of 509 or 167 is supposed to be finished in 2029 currently. This should be accomplishable. Uh, we've had some positive reports from WashDOT's Gateway Committee recently. In mid-November, WashDOT opened bids for 509 Stage 2A. The apparent best value proposal is just shy of 1% above initial estimates and is expected to be awarded before the end of the year. 509 Stage 2B will start getting formal bids in Q3 of 2024, uh, but WashDOT's reported that we have at least three interested bidders already, so it's possible that the project will avoid the same issues that have applied to others in the state. Um, I'll also note that 167 completion looks good. I should proceed on the current timeline, but obviously want to continue advocating that direction. Um, second bucket here, uh, proposing to support preserving, i.e. not redirecting, existing investments in innovative transportation projects. Uh, it's kind of a catch-all to ensure that the port is able to advocate for a wide variety of funded projects that may be paused or canceled due to unexpected cost increases elsewhere. As I've illustrated here, this applies to things like state funding for high-speed rail, investments in multimodal and active transportation, bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure, funding for decarbonization of our ferry fleets, uh, and port electrification grants. Again, just to name a few things, but there are a number of identified priorities in the transportation budget. Next slide, please. Our third priority area, which I've called decarbonization and climate action. Uh, I know this slide's a little busy, but I will move quickly. Uh, sustainable maritime fuels. Uh, proposing here that the port seek allocation of state funding to get the ball rolling on sustainable maritime fuels. In the short term, this looks like a small operating budget proviso around $250,000. We don't need that much to get the ball rolling for capacity building and stakeholder engagement work. Uh, longer term, this would involve establishing ongoing funding for a maritime fuels collaborative and creating private market incentives for the production, supply, and use of sustainable maritime fuels in Washington. Uh, the idea here is to take a page from the aviation sector's work on SAF, pursue a similar structure and timeline, hopefully somewhere within the next five years, to create incentives for the production of sustainable maritime fuels. Uh, adjustments to the Climate Commitment Act. 
uh, to support the continued decarbonization of maritime aviation and other port adjacent industries. Uh, we're proposing support for legislation that will implement identified improvements to the CCA, including exploring linkage of Washington's carbon market uh, to the California-Quebec market. Uh, Dave Mastin from AWB will talk more about that linkage bill in a moment, but I will say that uh, this is all part of a uh, uh, request bill from the Department of Ecology. Uh, shore power and clean trucking. Uh, touching on these together because th these are both shared priorities that we will have with the Seaport Alliance this year if adopted. Uh, on shore power, uh, proposing uh, support to increase existing shore power investments made by the state to ensure that projects are implementable in the face of project cost increases. Uh, those are mainly due to inflation. Um, support for uh, current incentive-based model as well to increase use of shore power rather than pursuing a state-level mandate around shore power. Um, also advocating here for support to explore opportunities for additional shore power investments that may uh, benefit decarbonization of uh, the cruise operations. Um, on clean trucking, uh, proposing to monitor and support anticipated outcomes of the ongoing medium and heavy duty zero emission vehicle studies being conducted by the Joint Transportation Committee. Um, also specifically advocating here that uh, drayage owner operators have access to any funding that might become available as a result of those recommendations. Um, as recommended by commission, uh, this also includes an emphasis on investments in charging infrastructure. Uh, community decarbonization. Uh, proposing general support here for the creation of a statewide community decarbonization program from CCA revenues. Uh, I've had a number of conversations with elected officials, obviously including commission, um, agency staff, and community level advocates that have pushed for substantially similar or the same ideas around community decarb. At a high level, this would include creating funding at the state level for community-specific clean energy and decarbonization projects and establishing a state-level environmental justice navigator-style program. Uh, the clean energy, com or, sorry, clean energy Office within Commerce has submitted a decision package aimed at creating a funding program, and there's likely to be a legislative proposal this year to establish an EJ Navigator program. Uh, we have yet to be able to review a bill draft there, but would like the flexibility to at least work on it. Um, overall, the goal here is to establish a state program that enables communities to address climate impacts in whatever way makes most sense to that community. Clean energy siting and phasing out fossil fuels. Uh, both Eric and Dave are planning to touch on this. However, quick reminder that during the 2023 session, Port supported passage of House Bill 1216, which created an interagency clean energy siting coordinating council, established a definition for clean energy projects of statewide significance, set shot clocks on CEPA review, created a new expedited review process for clean energy siting overall, uh, proposing here that the commission support uh, an expected follow-up slash trailer bill that should run this year. Um, this work should benefit the production and use of SAF, uh, advancement of hydrogen-based energy in the state's hydrogen hub, and could benefit sustainable maritime fuels in the future as well. Um, I also included the mention here of general support for phasing down fossil fuels to give the port some flexibility to work on other legislative proposals that we anticipate to move this session. Uh, that includes things like the so-called PSE bill, uh, which would phase out re uh, retail natural gas and move towards electrification, which would benefit the port's efforts to decarbonize our built environment. Um, also, the buy clean, buy fair bill, uh, according to port environmental staff, encouraging passage of those types of statewide requirements could actually generate cost savings for the port uh, by simplifying the contracting process. Uh, we already require via our contract process many of our construction vendors to comply with similar standards or, as what are present in the bill. Uh, again, just wanting to give us flexibility to get at the issue of the built environment. MOTCA, stormwater, and remedial action grants. Um, I will just say quickly that this item uh, proposes commission support for the same policies that Eric Fitch from the WPPA will talk about momentarily. 
And then last but not least, uh, sustainable waste management. Uh, this item requests commission support for the RAP Act, which again, we supported last year. It's identified at the end of last session as unfinished business. Uh, the amended proposal that we have seen so far looks nearly identical to last year's bill. And as a reminder, this is a policy regarding sustainably handling waste, increasing producer responsibility, and is aimed at reducing the prevalence of single-use plastics. It has major implications for solid waste management, consumption, and reduction at SEA. Next slide, please. I would like to introduce uh, Eric Fitch, Executive Director of the Washington Public Ports Association, to run through some of our shared priorities. Hi. Thank you, John. Who, this, who let this guy back in the building? <laughs> if you notice, I was escorted in by a police officer, actually. <laughs> um, members of the commission, Executive Director Metric, I'm Eric Fitch, Executive Director at the Washington Public Ports Association. Happy to be back with you today. Um, I, I have to start by saying a big thanks to John, a really impressive uh, presentation and uh, a little sad to hear the issues I worked on called legacy issues, but maybe that just means I'm finally getting old. You did a great job. <laughs> um, but really seriously, uh, John has been already a really um, solid partner to us at the Washington Public Ports Association, um, joining us in our offices during committee days and when, when el whenever, whenever else we can offer that as a home base, same goes for all of you. I hope you know our offices are actually technically your offices, so please join us in Olympia whenever you're down there working on some of the shared priorities that we'll talk about. Also, just a note of, of reflection and introduction, I was always asked to focus on partnerships in my role at the Port of Seattle. Um, John really has advanced that to a place that I, I didn't, and so I'm glad to be the embodiment of that <clears throat> today. And. Uh, also, I want to say a quick introduction. Joining me is James Coburn from the Washington Public Ports Association, our sixth and final employee, uh, which I say with a smile because when I took over a year ago, we, we had three and then four and now five and then six. And so I hope you all um, see our staff, uh, welcome our staff, and that they also welcome you when you see them um, down in Olympia. Uh, I, I'm going to go quick, uh, which is luckily I'm used to that here. Uh, but, um, but I do want to leave time to talk about any, any things I don't address. Um, John covered a lot of the issues I would raise, so I'll try to just mention them from the angle of, of how we can advance them through partnership. Uh, we put transition away from leaded aviation fuel up there because it's going to continue to be an issue that's discussed. Um, the port, as the operator of our state's primary commercial service airport, has been and continues to be a good partner to our small and medium-sized airports, including general aviation airports. I think in total 37 of our port members have uh, operate general aviation airports, some on the national priority integrated air system uh, list, some not. Many of them have aircraft that use leaded aviation fuel. Many of us were surprised to learn there was still lead in gas, and really it is for a very niche, uh, niche part of the aviation community. Um, last year, a partner of ours, or last session rather, introduced a bill to ban it um, and in so doing, exposed that uh, or brought up brought out a lot of folks who were still relying on the use of it for general aviation operations. So, as a as a necessary next step, our port members spoke up and talked about what I've called here a West Coast first approach. So we're currently working with advocates in the aviation community and the environmental community to promote an incentive program for the implementation of a federally permitted unleaded aviation gas alternative so that port members of ours, like for example, the Port of Camas Washougal, who want to trade out their infrastructure and, and make implementation of unleaded avgas a reality can do so with potentially some funding support for what will be a very 
expensive endeavor. So we expect that to be continued focus of our, our legislative partners and of our airport partners as well. Uh, energy supply and clean energy development is, is truly something that, that I hear about from a lot of our port members <clears throat> as we travel around the state. It's an economic development issue. Um, ports that want to site new industrial operations get questions from those prospective tenants about the availability of energy. Um, we have been tackling that from the clean energy siting side. When I saw you all in May at the end of session, we talked about House Bill 1216. Uh, I think I share the same perspective as probably John and Dave in saying we supported that bill, we're glad it passed. Nobody thinks it went nearly far enough in making it easy to site or easier even or just possible to site um, clean energy facilities in our state. Um, so we've discussed with the governor's office and others this challenging dynamic where the Department of Commerce recruits a cool clean energy company, tells them to come to Washington State, they get here and the Department of Ecology says not so fast. Um, it's gonna be difficult to continue making progress, but the good news is the prime sponsor, Joe Fitzgibbon, familiar to you, uh, at the risk of speaking for him, I think he agrees that more needs to be done. So we've spoken to him about a bill coming forward that we think will take another crack at uh, potentially the appeals process to smooth permitting, and we will speak up loudly in support of that bill. And uh, one other one I know that's near and dear to you all, uh, we were really happy to see the SAF alternative jet fuel incentive package passed last session. Now we're all kind of wondering if it's gonna work. So we'll be monitoring that and seeing if there are companies coming into our state. Um, the port decarbonization funding is a huge investment from the state in our ports who want to bring about the next generation of clean maritime and aviation technologies. Um, there are, are $26.5 million in a grant program at WashDOT that have not been issued yet for ports to apply for. So that's supposed to happen in January. Meanwhile, we're hearing rumors from the legislature that they want to reprogram some of that funding for other um, initiatives. So our message to the legislature is let us spend it before you put it somewhere else. And we hope we can uh, expect your support. I think we, we will be glad to work with John and others uh, in Olympia. I want to talk about MOTCA just because it's uh, probably an issue that my predecessor brought to me my first week on the job at the Port of Seattle. And really, it is presented in our advocacy as an environmental issue. But WPPA sat down with the governor this summer, and we were planning to talk to him about MACA. And he said, before we could even pull out our talking points, he said, you guys always talk about MACA as an environmental issue. MACA is an economic development issue. This is about putting jobs back on the waterfront. And we couldn't agree more. So we will continue to be the face of MACA advocacy, not just for the Port of Seattle, but for all ports. We will approach it from uh, economic development perspective, and we will oppose another sort of evergreen MACA issue, which is that the funding gets swept for other purposes. So last session, 50 million went from capital account to the operating account. We want to reverse that funding uh, sweep, and we'll work with our members on that. Uh, the last couple items are uh, really about infrastructure. So we pushed last year for a bill to provide a tax credit for investments in short line rail infrastructure. I've been out visiting members and really you have the, the main BNSF line and then you have a mile track that's owned by a port district and they need that track to get goods off the main line to their port. Uh, and oftentimes that rail is, is rickety at best. So this will promote investment in rail infrastructure that we think will speed the movement of, of goods 
to ports, which is what we're here for. Um, second to last bullet, supply chain funding. This is uh, quickly being known as the empty bucket, which we'll have to find a new branding for that. But uh, Senator Leas, the chair of the Senate Transportation Committee, wants to create a freight funding account, but not fund it this year. Um, he wants to set it up for future funding once priority needs have been identified. This will focus on bottlenecks and choke points on the main system. So we will support that and we will support funding for it in the future. We'll work with our members on identifying projects that, that merit funding through that package. Um, and then because John mentioned it and because I talked about it every single time I briefed you for seven years, the Puget Sound, Gate, Puget Sound Gateway is not yet completed. We are adopting a really stern but positive finish what we started message with transportation policymakers and that will support the conclusion of the gateway. And the last bullet really is to say, I think if you're going for an issue in, in Olympia and other ports agree to the extent that your association can stand up behind you and, and with you, we will. So please get in touch with us. You know, for example, Port of Bellingham is pursuing funding for a commercial pump out for the tug and barge industry to use in Bellingham Bay. We will support that as a critical to the working waterfront. So with that, I will invite my, my dear friend and the former Port of Walla Walla lobbyist, Dave Mastin, up here for uh, his angle on partnership. I'll take the next slide, please. So real quickly, um, we're going to take a quick pause here. Uh, Commissioner Calkins needs to head out and join us virtually. So we're going to take about three minutes for him to make that transition. Uh, and we'll adjourn back again. <laughs> I thought after that you'd be asleep. <laughs> so we'll recess for three minutes and we'll be back at uh, approximately 3.30. Thank you. I'll re um, bring us back out of, yes, reconvene is the word. Um, from recess, it is now 3.32 p.m. Uh, please continue. I'm on. He's on. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Uh, reintroducing Dave Mastin, <laughs> VP of Government Affairs from the Association of Washington Business. Uh, members of the Commission, uh, Executive Director Metrics, uh, thank you for having me. My name is Dave Mastin, Vice President of Government Affairs at the Association of Washington Business. We are the State, uh, state Chamber of Commerce and the State Manufacturing Association. We have roughly six to 7,000 members. About 65% of our members have 10 or fewer employees, so a large percentage of the association is a, that smaller business, the Main Street kind of business. Uh, we also have the very large businesses as well, but that's kind of the, the breakdown of who we are. Uh, we're coming into uh, what's going to be a very interesting legislative session with 60 days. It's a short session. Uh, actually, for the first time since 2012, there will be uh, five, I think four or five uh, statewide offices that will be open and so that's an unusual as we move into the election cycle I'm um, going into the session I have uh, some of the highlights of some of the areas that we're working on um, in the sake of time I'll, I might jump around a little bit let me start with the top one though increasing access to child care uh, our state re uh, presently has about 300,000 uh, children that are under the age of six and we have about hundred and eighty thousand child care slots licensed child care slots so I'm gonna slow down 300,000 children under the age of six, 180,000 licensed child care slots. Now there's other ways that children are provided for, but this is a significant difference. The state provides about $2 billion in early learning and child care. 
uh, per uh, about $2 billion, $34 billion in K-12 education, and about $18 billion in higher education. Uh, so this is an area where the state has not been as strongly focused as they have in uh, K-12 and higher ed, and you're starting to see a shift now. Um, we were part of a co uh, collaborative task force that was created in 2018. Actually, Amy Anderson, who works with me, was the uh, co-chair of that. Uh, three things came out of that. Number one, we need to find uh, tax incentives and other incentives for the employer community. Uh, this is not something that you can just put on the employer community's back. Uh, number two, streamlining regulations and some changes. Now, we're talking about children, so the safety side is critical that we, we look at safety and, and, the, and those kind of issues, but again, there's some regulatory changes. And then we have significant disparities, and disparities both in the urban-rural but also uh, within the communities of color that we see a uh, disparity in what's at, what access, what's available. Um, so this is an area that we've been working on for quite some time, and we're going to continue uh, in this area. And, and as was mentioned, we don't know how much is going to be moved this year, but looking at 2025, we may see some uh, bigger proposals on that. Um, I'm going to jump then to the, the cap and trade program, which is the CCA, the Clean, uh, the Climate Commitment Act. The, the initiative is, has, looks like it has a signature, so this is an, uh, a situation where the legislators have to decide how they're going to respond. We're encouraging them to be very strong in adding some uh, fix-it language to the existing CCA. We need to manage the cost increase in a way that has not happened so far, the way that bump, bumping in the, uh, through the auctions and the increased costs. There needs to be some uh, focus on that and managing that a little better than we have. Uh, we need to also link up uh, the CCA with the other state programs that we have, the greenhouse gas program and some of the other programs we have. There's not green, really good linkage, linkage right now. Over the years, the legislature passes different bills that are connected to environmental protection and clean, uh, climate, but they don't always connect them. And so that's an area where we could see some real improvement this coming year. And then we also need to do a little better linking with California in this regard, where um, do we have the same definitions of biodiesel fuel no we don't biofuel we don't um, are there some different caps that they have that we don't have and if we're going to link with them in Quebec uh, that's going to be important that we get some of those uh, linkage that that clarification so we're going to be talking to legislators about that uh, the linkage with California looks like in Quebec looks like it probably would happen by about 2027 so we have to move forward some of our uh, credit allowances before that to help uh, the price spikes to try to limit some of the price spikes so that's another area that we're uh, pushing with the legislature. If they offer an alternative, uh, is it an alternative that has to go to the ballot or is it an alternative that they can just do? Uh, that's a legal question that we don't have complete answers for on that, um, but that's another area that we're going to be looking at as a business community. Um, we, you, you talked about the clean air, uh, clean energy siding. I'll echo. Uh, we also were, uh, felt like the proposal that passed a couple years ago was decent. It was in the right, move in the right direction. There's some cleanup that needs to happen. Uh, one of the issues is the length of time for appeals and trying to get that right. And that's an area where we, we think that there should be some improvement on. Uh, Next on my list is the creating a comprehensive career-connected workforce. Let me just leave you, let me just talk about this. About a third of our high school graduates get out of high school and do not have any formal training after that. That's about a third. So that's about 30,000 students a year. So whatever our graduation rate is, whether it's 80%, 90%, you measure, there's different ways to do that, whether it's in the first year or over the five-year cohort. The reality is, is about a third of our graduates do not do any further training. And when you look at the job markets, it is that mid-level skilled job 
that we are we need more and we need more and so we're working hard with uh, the education community to figure out how do we link how do we make it so that a student getting out of high school they have the next step which is some kind of credential some kind of certification um, uh, representative Berquist had a great bill last year on some uh, funding for grants that we supported and there's some other ideas out there that we're, we're in part of um, I appreciate the increasing housing supply and the preservation of, of industrial land. We have to do both, and you're more than well aware of, of this as an issue. And just again, AWB as a business community is both very active in the housing side, um, supporting the work that uh, Senator Trudeau had did, as well as uh, Lieutenant Governor Heck. Um, so very supportive of those efforts. But preserving that industrial land, which f feeds me into my final point, they're expanding manufacturing uh, in Washington. We, are, we, we have been part of the council that was created by the legislature a couple years ago to expand manufacturing in all regions of the state. And they said as their objective for doing that is they wanted to double the number of manufacturing jobs, double the number of women-owned manufacturing firms, double the number of BIPOC-owned manufacturing firms. And they asked Commerce to bring together labor, bring together some education folks, and bring together business and come up with some ideas that we could get you agreement on so labor and business coming together with the education community things that we come uh, to agreement on we have our final meeting this uh, this Thursday um, I am hoping and I believe that we will be presenting through that council some um, some some really good proposals that will help do uh, do that in the next session uh, I hesitate to talk about them yet because the process isn't there yet but I'm looking forward to being able to talk more about that in the future um, with that, I, I, that, that's my bullet list there. I'd be happy to answer any questions and really just appreciate the work that the Port of Seattle has done. Uh, we are an international trade uh, state in a big way, and the work that you do there and the work that you do internally, I uh, just really appreciate the leadership. Excellent. Yes, Commissioner Mohammed. Thank you for the presentation and the information that you shared. I had a couple of questions. One, um, you started off with the child care slots. Yes. You said there's about 300,000 children who are under six and 180 child care slots have been available to them. So are you guys trying to address the other 120,000? Yes, and that and this comes from the collaborative task force that was started in 2018, and they've done their work and they've come up and they've had several reports, um, and we, I can get those to you as well. But uh, that was to give just the magnitude that there is um, what, what what they're paid, the pay level. There's challenges there. Just having enough slots, having enough childcare providers. There's challenges there. So there's a lot of different areas where there's uh, there are a lot of challenges in this area, and it's an area that the legislature. Um, a few years ago, they were really looking at K-12 and the McCleary fix, and I had the, the honor of working at the superintendent of public instruction at that time and being part of the McCleary fix where the focus was on the K-12 funding system and literally almost doubled it uh, over the last six years. But it was adding four, six billion dollars in funding to that level, and there weren't tax increases for that, and there weren't tax increases on the employer community and it was like okay this this is a priority let's do that again in this area because this is an area that's truly a, a business issue as well as others yeah we're hearing from the the labor unions on that wanting yes. to see more more facilities and then we hear sometimes from the airport workers as well do you from that task force committee have any sort of idea like any numbers associated with port industries 
Oh, I don't recall there being something specific to the ports. Okay. Um, what you're experiencing, I can just share from other employers across our association, they're sure this is something that is, it's across the state. It's a real problem that we're, needs to be addressed and mm -hmm. needs to be addressed by folks coming together and finding those solutions. I think that's happening, uh, and I, I think we need a, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, and then my, my last question is around the, creating the comprehensive career connective workforce training. Are any um, curriculum development ideas surrounded around that? So there's there's three different that we really focus on, and what we what we like to see is we like to see the employer community's voice and their engagement in developing the curriculum, in mm. developing the programs, and making sure that, the, and, and the academic and the, and the work put that together, and how do you do that? And one of the big areas that you're gonna be seeing in the legislature, and I think we have in the past as well, is expanding of those dual credit opportunities, where a student's in high school getting credit for high school, and then also taking classes that give them credit for high school graduation and for college. And so dual credit is a big mm -hmm. one. I'm gonna mention three programs that are really close to AWB, uh, what we really push. One is called Core Plus, which is mm -hmm. right now a K-12 a K program, right? The second is the Job Skills program that you'll see in our technical and community colleges. Again, works closely with the employers putting it together. And then with uh, the governor, uh, the governors uh, pushed on the Career Connect Washington, which is we, uh, AWB is very involved with that at several different levels. And again, that's another program where we are connecting the academic with the work skill and the experience in putting that together. Uh, we have a long way as a state to go, mm -hmm. but this is super critical uh, that we, we do a really good job in these areas and, and figure out how all of the, our people in our state are able to get those kind of credentials and jobs and experience to, to get the jobs that are out there. Yeah, and the Port of Seattle has done a, a good job of actually supporting some of those programs as yes. well, and I think our legislative agenda complements that. Well, I kind of interrupted no. the process. I don't know if you want to just do general questions. Yeah. I was going to touch on a couple more, got a couple I, more slides okay. here and then open it back. Well, if he's leaving, I'd like to yeah, ask yeah. him some questions. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I had a question with regards to the cap and trade program. Um, to what, it, you know, what does it mean to link, uh, you know, the potential of linking Washington, California, I know Oregon is potentially establishing a cap and trade. To what extent are we thinking about integrating the cap and trade? Is it a single market that we're trying to create? Is it just the platform on which the spot price is advertised. Um, I'm curious to learn more about what that means. So there are, um, I'm, I'm gonna answer the question, but at a general, more general level, there's people who have much more detailed on how those actual programs work. But at a general level, uh, the existing uh, auctions are within the state of Washington. And so, right. I'm, and I'm gonna totally make this number up. So there's 10 credits that are available to purchase. And so when you have a low supply, right, and the demand's high, the price goes up. If you then added the 400 credits that California has, well now you have 500 credits total, or five, 410 credits, whatever that number is, and so it's really a supply and demand. So that's one of the big issues is expanding into California and Quebec creates a larger market, which stabilizes the prices. And what we saw recently was a very, uh, a very, in rapid increase in, in, in the cost because of the limited supply that we have. And there's, the statute has some triggers in there to help offset that. 
Uh, but, and now I'm getting deep in the weeds, but it does have some tr triggers in the statute to fix that. But they're set in a way where it's like, okay, we might want to do a little bit more. Let's put more credits in early and then get that linkage with California strong. And I, universally, I think there aren't very many people in, the, in this whole policy discussion that um, aren't eager to get linked to California. The, the, how to make it work and make it work right, that, that's kind of the structure that they're, they're working through. Yeah, I, I guess, would, I, go ahead, I was just gonna also add, the, the bill that Ecology is proposing this year, by the way, doesn't automatically link the markets. That's, we, we can't do that. This is a bill that does some programmatic fixes and then explores the option to link in the future. We would still have to be approved by California, Quebec, those other markets before we can actually join as one market as well. Yeah, I guess I, I, I mean, not that we have any say over this, but I have a lot of skepticism around the idea of a single market, mainly because to your point about supply and demand, if you flood the market with supply, the, price, the spot price will go down. And we want to make money off the credit so that we can reinvest in actual sustainability, mm -hmm. right? So from, from that perspective, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe I'm not understanding this correctly, but from my perspective, that we want the state to generate as many, as much revenue as possible from these credits. And for us to link it with a California, which is 10 times, 20 times our size, would not do us a favor. The other problem is making sure that the credits generated in Washington apply to Washington. Right. And not and don't bleed over into California or Quebec, right? Um, the same, and, 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 the exact same talking points you're currently espousing. Yeah. Ecology has the same ones, right? Okay. They have the exact same concerns. Okay, good. Um, so, I, if helpful, I think it might make sense for us to get one of the experts who like really yeah. works on the day to day from the actual program to come in and talk to you Th about that'd it. That'd be well. great. I can try. To I'm glad. I'm glad I'm not the only one. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of smart and, people working on this. And commissioner, uh, if yeah. I may, on that, that, that there's. Um, there's no question that the program was put together to raise the, uh, the cost of fossil fuel. That was part of what was behind the, the program. The question I think that is being asked, and I'm hearing from folks in the Olympia area trying to figure this out, is how fast and how, uh, is there a stable increase? Is it a gradual stable, or is it doing this? And this, the un, it's the uncertainty. Yeah, it's the volatility. I, yeah. I totally understand. So, so no, that's I, an I area where I think there's, whether folks want to get together with California, you know, I think that trying to figure out how to limit that, that volatility is a super critical piece yeah, on that. Yeah, I, I hear you on that one. Um, then lastly, real quickly, expanding manufacturing in Washington. This is an interesting one because I think when we talk about expanding manufacturing, in not just Washington, but in the U.S., it, it really goes back to kind of like the CHIPS Act, the, you know, and, and a lot of the, the hype around reshoring, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm to be candid, in all my travels this year, uh, I've heard a lot of skepticism around reshoring. So I'm curious to get your thoughts, given that you have a kind of a, a pulse check on how manufacturing is going in, in the state of Washington in general. If you do see more potential manufacturing facilities opening up, or if you know this this so-called globalization is dead is actually dead. So one of the challenges that we're having in our state is that uh, we have two advantages over other states. So we commissioned a study a couple years ago, Association of Washington Business did. We did a study um, and we looked at manufacturing and go, okay, compared to other states, how do we, how do we rate? And in areas, the two areas where we had the huge advantage over other states was in workforce and mm -hmm. our workforce at the master's 
graduate level was very high compared to others, so at the higher end of the educational uh, spectrum. Uh, so that was one. And the other one, which unfortunately is we're starting to lose, is the cost of energy, mm -hmm. right? The, the cost of energy was something that we had a competitive advantage. The cost of employment, our advantages are, are low compared to some of the other, uh, some of the other states in, our, in the union, and that, that, that's just the reality. But the two areas that we were the strongest were workforce, uh, at the higher end, and then uh, the energy. And energy is an issue now that is definitely of concern for the association because of what we've seen happening in some of the positions and movement that we've seen in the public uh, sphere uh, that is co raising costs of that energy, which has been our competitive advantage. Yeah. Uh, the big issue, is, the other thing is, is in our state, from if you look at uh, the, our OFM data, what are we projected to do in the next 20 years in manufacturing jobs? Lose them. We're losing jobs. Yeah. So our message to public policymakers, if you do what you've been doing and you continue to do that, we're going to lose jobs, not gain jobs. And that's, a, that's another big issue is we need to do things differently. We're working close with labor on this. We're working with the education community as well. We need to figure this out together. But as, a, as public policymakers, we've got to be careful to say, oh, we can just do a little bit, and it's going to bring that doubling of manufacturing mm -hmm. that the statute asks for, right? We have to do things significantly different, and we need to do them together, and some of them won't be easy. But um, the direction we're going is not the right direction when it comes to manufacturing. So that, that is a, pretty, a big concern for me. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. We really appreciate the time and appreciate Absolutely. the partnership very Absolutely. much. Thank you. With that, hopping back in here. Next slide. Okay. So great. Um, as I mentioned at the start of this presentation, from here we have a couple slides displaying uh, longtime legacy positions held by the port. Uh, I won't touch on most of the text included here. Just briefly provide some quick updates on a couple of these things. And I will also uh, answer the question that I was asked when we were in one of our intermissions there. Um, on that first bullet regarding worker training, um, just continuing uh, to monitor bills, uh, like a couple that uh, came up last year, which would modify responsible bidder criteria for public works projects, things like that. Uh, trucking, we continue to participate in conversations about increasing CDL holders, uh, truck stops, things like that. Broadband, obviously the state will continue to make mass massive investments in broadband infrastructure, trying to increase internet service availability for folks and, and bridging the digital divide. Um, on rural initiatives, really quick, uh, Commerce and the Washington Economic Development Association will jointly pursue establishing an ADO competitive grant funding program this year that supports and catalyzes uh, initiatives at ADOs to quote unquote foster innovation, sustainability, and equity. So trying to help out uh, all boats rise together, uh, rural initiatives, if we're supporting, theoretically they'll support us. Uh, on the last bullet, really quick, uh, we supported a bill last year. Uh, the port remains constrained in our use of the Small Works roster for public contracting. Uh, language in current law caps the size of contracts where we can rely on the Small Works roster. Uh, this is in here mainly uh, because that bill will become active once again when we start back up. want to give us some flexibility to continue working on that issue. Next slide, please. Uh, here we have our legacy uh, energy, climate, environment, and habitat positions. Real quick at the top, I will say, uh, Commissioner Mohammed, you had asked me earlier about um, where in here uh, there might be some work around impacts to airport communities. Um, in your memo on page two, uh, where it talks about CCA or starts to talk about what we would like to see CCA programming used on, the last bullet there says supporting use of CCA revenue to mitigate impacts to near port communities. And that's where I'm, I'm thinking of picking up on the priorities that we had discussed, which I hope makes sense. Um, Hopping back over here, because I know we'll have questions at the end as well. 
Um, on that second bullet, uh, which obviously has a lot of text, I just want to emphasize uh, that the port is seeking to implement these priorities in ways that leverage our state's competitiveness, maintain efficient operation of public facilities, uh, support equity. Um, this board, uh, sorry, this bullet should also give the port some flexibility to advocate around clean buildings um, where we don't have direct authority necessarily, uh, general support for electric vehicles and charging infrastructure, things like that. Um, on sustainable aviation fuels, because Eric mentioned it as well, uh, we are not currently anticipating any legislative action on the inactive SAF incentive program, which was passed last year, uh, which may be open to change. We're not sure yet. Uh, but we're likely to participate in some conversations with our major airlines regarding funding opportunities, especially around infrastructure to then support sustainable aviation. Um, on MOTCA, um, Eric did a good job summarizing where things are at this session. Just a quick reminder that MOTCA funding is the only place at the state level that currently provides resources for stormwater infrastructure, which we believe will be a huge issue for us this session. Next slide, please. Uh, transportation issues. Uh, real quick, uh, there's a bullet in there that says mon um, monitoring, uh, sorry, promoting Washington as an international trading partner. Um, we might see renewed legislation this session that will do a couple things. It was House Bill 1778 last year. One of the things in there is setting up foreign trade offices. We'd like to see that uh, continue on. Uh, next bullet down from that one regarding uh, the port's uh, authority to control access to port facilities. I just want to state uh, that this is not related to access fees at SEA uh, because I've had that question come up a couple times. This is about promoting fairness and equity among transportation service providers, responsible operation, insurance, monitoring, safety, all that. Um, Real ID compliance, we're expecting to see uh, DOL come forward with a funding request for Real ID compliance implementation. We hope that goes well. We are currently ranked last in terms of states as we implement Real ID for a number of reasons that I won't get into. Um, transportation revenue, as I mentioned before, that there are some huge issues with transportation revenue this year. I included a uh, bullet here just so we can be responsive to any ongoing conversations about things like the road usage charge, tolling, any minor transportation revenue increases, uh, airport siting. The COG, the Commercial Aviation Work Group, uh, is required to submit a progress report in January of 2024. That progress report, we expect to say virtually nothing. Um, we do not anticipate any major progress this session. Uh, port staff at SEA have officially applied to serve on that body, though, and we should uh, expect to see some sort of an appointment probably mid-session, I hope. Uh, next slide. Land use, um, I will just mention really quick that that first bullet is somewhat opaque. I can walk through what is actually present in that guiding principles document that we adopted back in 2016, but this is something that's been on the port agenda for a number of years, so I can answer that separately. Um, on that second bullet, regarding residential development, um, one of the issues we identified as an unfinished business last year was the transit-oriented development bill. That absolutely fits in here. As a reminder, that bill incentivizes multifamily residential development within certain areas adjacent to transit corridors and stops, proposing here that the commission support an amended version of that bill. Uh, we've already talked to uh, uh, the sponsor in the House about including specified protect protections for industrial lands as part of the bill, because although it does protect industrial lands, doesn't call it out, um, we, that should be implementable, that should be doable. Uh, next slide. Last one, a bunch of catch-alls here. Um, I will just say quick on technology. Uh, we included a bullet here regarding monitoring AI regulation, which is likely to come up with this session, although we are not sure in what form. Um, and then on civil asset forfeiture, this is the third and final issue that was identified as unfinished business last session, proposing to continue pursuing legislation to grant the port some additional flexibility with proceeds from asset forfeiture proceedings. Next slide. 
Uh, just a reminder on next steps. Following conclusion of today's meeting, I will continue to solicit and incorporate feedback on this agenda from you all, board staff, outside stakeholders, state agencies, key state legislators. Uh, the next, or sorry, the legislative session begins on January 8th. I will appear before commission on January 9th, the second day of session, to seek uh, adoption of our final state legislative agenda. And the session is expected to conclude in early March. Next slide, please. And questions. Excellent. And actually, can I invite Trent House up here as well? Sorry, uh, Trent, our longtime contract lobbyist, uh, just to help me field some questions in case there are things that are longer term or outside of my purview. Great. Thank, thank you, John. Take a swig of water, man. Jeez. <laughs> Catching my breath uh, right now. Any questions? No? Maybe? I hope that answer was <laughs> you satisfactory my, for the question you yeah, asked. Yeah, you, you answered my questions around um, sound installation. It's it's. It's not specific, but I think it's fine so long as you're clear on um, what the intent was around that. And there's um, um, separately, I should also follow up with you for uh, um, just some additional info that I've learned even since last time we talked about it. Um, so I'll type that up and get it into a briefing for you as well. Perfect. Yeah, and I just, I, I, all I want to say is um, thank you for the briefings that you've done before coming <laughs> in front of commission. I feel like I was up to speed on a lot of this great. stuff, and this was a great presentation. Um, yeah, and, and you did great with your first presentation on the commission. John is a UW graduate, and we <laughs> majored in the same major at Law, Societies, and Justice, just for the record. Sam and I don't know each other at all. So. Go Huskies. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't have any follow-up questions. I think I asked my questions earlier, so thank you, John. Great work. Great. Trent? Sorry you had to come all the way up. It's all great. But, you know, this is what happens when you have an all-star state GR person. That's great. So, um, yeah, uh, John and I also go back. Um, yeah, we were in IDF together back in 2019. So uh, this might have been a part of a grander scheme. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Thank you, John. Thank you, Trent. Thank you to the external affairs team for all your great work. Um, and we look forward to Hey, Sam, to... do you mind if I chime in? Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Commissioner Calkins. <laughs> I was going to get to you, man. I, 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 I promise. I, I was forget. off the hook. Um, I'm about to get grilled. No, you are. You are. Uh, the only thing I wanted to say, John, is please don't hesitate to, while you're in session and you are, you know, working 18-hour days and just going crazy, lean on your commission. Mm -hmm. We are here to help. Uh, you know, we have a lot of... Um, personal and professional relationships with a lot of the uh, members and also the you know staff down there so that is honestly going to be you know for you as you work with Trent and Fitch and others just you know don't don't hesitate to reach out and say hey we're trying to get a hold of such and so do any of you have a connection there that can be a really important part of getting the ports voice heard in Olympia too one of the things I need to do this week, and it'll be included in my updated presentation for y'all on the 9th, um, chopping up some of our major priorities and saying, here's where I think uh, different members of the commission uh, can yeah. help out on these things and, and asking for that as well. Yeah, I, I echo the sentiments of Ryan, not just on the personal side, but even publicly, mm -hmm. uh, as I'm sure you've heard from Eric Fitch, our, your predecessor. He, he very readily abused, I mean, uh, leveraged <laughs> us commissioners uh, down in Olympia. Um, and so, uh, we look forward to opportunities to come down to Olympia and testify on behalf of the port. So thanks, John, in advance for all the great work, and thank you, Trent, for all the great work you're going to be doing on our behalf as well. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right. Well, we have um, broken my streak uh, of short <laughs> meetings, shorter meetings.
But that does conclude our business meeting agenda for the day. Um, but before we move into closing comments, uh, and in order to meet revised Code of Washington requirements, Clerk Hart will actually be now administering uh, the oath of office for my second term, which begins in 2024. So if f folks could just momentarily indulge us uh, for a few minutes, uh, Clerk Hart, please join me in the middle of the dais. I also want to ask, uh, my mom is in the audience today, if she can also come up and just stand between us as we take this oath as well. I, Sam Cho, having been duly elected, having been duly elected to the office of Port of Seattle, to the office of Port of Seattle, Commissioner position number two, Commissioner position number two, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear, that you will faithfully and impartially, that I will faithfully and impartially discharge the duties of this office, discharge the duties of this office as prescribed by law, as prescribed by law, and to the best of my ability and to the best of my ability and that I will support and that I will support and maintain and maintain the constitutions the constitutions of the state of Washington of the state of Washington and of the United States of America and the United States of America you are thank you <laughs>
Awesome. Uh, thank you so much, Clerk Hart, for that. Uh, and thank you all for accommodating that. Uh, it is truly an honor for me to be able to serve a second term. Um, uh, I know Aaron Pritchard's not here, but Aaron and I had this discussion real quickly. Um, you know, everyone here knows that uh, when I became president this year that I'd become the first person of color to serve as president of the Port of Seattle. But uh, it dawned on us, actually, that I'm the first person of the color to ever serve more than one term. At the Port of Seattle as well, uh, and so I'm really, really um, happy and honored to be breaking that barrier uh, alongside my colleagues. Um, and so, uh, I, I want to close uh, with comments today by stating that it was such a successful year for us here at the Port of Seattle. Um, I will actually have my year-end remarks uh, or concluding remarks on the January 9th meeting. Uh, Commission Mohammed has graciously allowed me to uh, uh, preside over that meeting before I hand the gavel. Uh, but uh, with that, I did want to give a bit of a preview and a pre precursor to January 9th. Um, and, you know, I think one of the strengths of our commission is that we have such great leaders, uh, such diverse leaders, um, uh, leaders from different walks of life who come with different perspectives. Um, and obviously, there was a lot of questions around who will be president of the commission next year, um, even among us as, uh, as commissioners. Um, but, you know, today, in, in, at the end of today's commission meeting, I did want to voice my steadfast support for Commissioner Hamdi Mohammed for president of the commission in 2024. Um, you know, I have no doubts that she will be a tremendous uh, commission president for us. Uh, she has been a tremendous leader for us since day one. Um, and so I look forward to handing the gavel off to Commissioner Mohammed uh, on January 9th. Um, and so with that, I'll go ahead and open it for additional co closing comments from commissioners at this time. I know Commissioner Calkins, you're, I know you're virtual, but you may uh, want to make some comments. I, I do. Is now a good time? Yes, go ahead. You know, the, the uh, first congratulations, Sam. You have been an extraordinary president of the commission this year and uh, the people of King County were smart to not, for literally no one stepped up to challenge you because you've done a great job as a commissioner. And so I'm so excited to have you back for a second term. Uh, the other thing I wanted to address is that we have an extraordinary set of leaders on the commission. And so it was a very challenging decision-making process for us to figure out who would lead in 2024 because there were so, uh, there, there were great options all around. And I, so I want to, speak up on behalf of Commissioner Hasegawa and say that, uh, first off, I just want to share how beloved she is by staff. Uh, I think that is the mark of a, a great leader in many ways, and she has shown herself to be the kind of person that people want to follow. And uh, so in a relatively extraordinary move, we have uh, internally agreed at the commission that we intend for her to be president in 2025 um, once Hamdi has completed her year as chair for Commissioner Hasegawa to step up and be the next leader and, and so therefore she'll serve next year as the vice president if, if all goes as I think we're intending. And um, 
and I look forward to two years of transformational leadership to add on to the year that you've provided us, Sam. So I think with that, I'll, I'll close out, but I, I'm just, I feel, I pinch myself to get to work with you guys as colleagues. Thank you, Commissioner Calkins. And the final word goes to Commissioner Mohammed. Thank you, President Cho. Um, I admire you so much. <laughs> I admire your leadership, and I did even before I joined the commission. And you know, you have worked so hard to advocate for small businesses. You've taken bold steps in this position as commission president. Um, not only are you a local leader, but you are an international leader in my eyes. Just the partnerships that you have been able to establish and support with the, the Port of Busan, um, it just the, 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 the Green Corridor efforts, the Cargo Green Corridor efforts, those things are huge. And you've spent so much time representing us both at the Port of Seattle and at the Alliance internationally. And I don't know if you recognize that, but I, I really do see you as an international leader. You are a force to reckon with. Um, and it's an honor to serve alongside you. And it's been great to watch you in this presidency role. Um, you've maneuvered so many different challenges and have done it with a lot of grace, lots of patience. And um, yeah, I'm excited that you're gonna be around for another four years at the Port of Seattle. And um, you know, I'm really excited about next year. I'm really excited about the opportunity to step into the commission presidency role. I recognize it comes with a lot of responsibility and work and I'm looking forward to that. And um, I feel like it's gonna be an excellent year because my colleagues are amazing. Um, Commissioner Hasegawa is not here, but we had many conversations about some of this stuff. And I, um, I had asked her, we've even thought about maybe doing a co-presidency and I pushed her really hard on it and she didn't wanna go for that. <laughs> But um, I, I admire her too, and I admire her leadership, and I had the opportunity and the privilege to run alongside her. Um, and she's one of the strongest women I know out there. Um, and uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm looking forward to next year for us to continue this good work that we're doing. Thank you for the time. Thank you so much, Commissioner Mohammed. I'm also equally excited uh, for your presidency next year. Uh, thank you for your leadership. Um, and then uh, I'll kick it over to Executive Director Metric if you have any closing comments or thoughts. Thanks, uh, Mr. President. I, I also want to congratulate you, President Cho, on your reelection. And look, and it's been, as I said before, it's been a fantastic year working through efficiently and effectively, uh, you know, um, through a great number of things that we accomplished in this year. And uh, Commissioner Mohammed, I look forward to uh, looking, working with you uh, next year and all the commissioners. Uh, we accomplished a lot in 2023. I look forward to talking a little bit more about that as we as we uh, enter into 2024 but I think you've laid the solid groundwork continuing on the work that we've done over the last few years uh, together on that so I look forward to that continuing those efforts excellent thank you so much uh, executive director metric all right hearing no further comments and having no further business if there is no objection we are adjourned at 4 13 p.m. thank you everyone thank you.